I'ma say what I feel And I promise to keep it real Welcome to the Red Room Diminishing the doubts are behind ya It's hard to grind and the business got me stressed In the rent room, we let that shit up off our chest You know the street nerds got no time for no caca Sass in class, yes that's Mr. Bolakaja Never have to guess when you're listening to Hilliard He gon' bring more game than a shark playing billiards It's all about the crap of screenwriting It's exciting when you turn an outline into something enlightening Your pen and words are like bullets in a gun Write what you feel, say what you want Welcome to the rent room What's up, y'all? It's your boy, Hilliard Guest, and you guys are listening to the Screenwriters Rant Room, where we keep it real, we keep it opinionated, we keep it what, Chris? 2019. Yeah. On this show, we discuss entertainment, TV, film, music, culture, but our focus is always screenwriting, stories, craft, and shit like that. Lisa Bolakaja is out today, but again, Chris is in the house representing as usual. Yes. Doing his thug dizzle. I am, man. I am. I, <laughs> I told am. you we're silly over here, Keith. <laughs> I am, man. I'm just, uh, uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's such a, it's a weird time mm-hmm. because of what's going on with staffing and the right. ATA and all this kind of craziness. Um, and I just... Uh, Keith is like that's why I'm sticking over here in these in these films. Yeah, like, like that yeah, TV well, stuff, right? No, but that's but but but, but, but you know what? You can, you can talk whatever you want. But to. you know what? Oh, I, it's it's something, it's something I I said the, the last week. I said, you know what? I want to write a movie again. It's been, a, it's been I miss a, it. It's, I do. It's been, yeah, it's been a, there's a this idea that's been percolating for like the last four months, and um, I've been like doing an outline, doing an outline, and I just was like. You know everything about this the TV thing is it's such a it's such a crazy thing right now, mm-hmm. and I was like I just want to do this movie I have I I'm so it's and I love it. That's the best time, don't you agree? I, I agree. I mean, I I'm sitting here thinking I want to get into TV, but I, I like that you're uh, <laughs> trying to get into film too. You Definitely. know, I mean, well, you know, because like I because I wrote a movie last year that a lot of people really really liked. I had I have some interesting. Uh, Financing. Should you like, tell like Keith what it's tell about? Me, tell me about it. So it's this, it's this story. It's called Mercury Falling. It's about Orson Welles. It's just a four-year period in his life from 1948 to 1952 from when he initially left Hollywood. And it's kind of like his career is in shambles. And it's like, and it's like how does he get his career back, you know, like going again? Yeah. But it's all in Europe. And it's and it's all focused around the the making of his movie Othello, which took him four years to do, and uh, and t- like he was shooting it piecemeal, like mm-hmm. <laughs> just just over four years. And through that time period, you know, he's he's shooting in he's shooting in Rome, he's shooting in Venice, he's shooting in Morocco, you know. Then he, but he's also going to Paris to to meet Eartha Kitt, and he kind of like discovers her, and he and, and he's shoot, and he's shooting um, the Third Man during that time period, and he's doing plays in London with almost Olivier. So it's just kind of this big story. Um, you yeah, know, it's, it's, it's a cheap movie, like a million dollar movie. You know? Yeah, but it's in Europe. That's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of soft there's, money. There's, there's a lot of soft money. A lot of soft money. So I had some. So some guys have looked at it. Um, who had who went to Berlin? It's a friend of mine who's a, who's German producer, big German producer, who who really really likes it. Um, and we're just talking. We're just just we're just trying to figure it out right now. You know, um, you know, obviously. 
there's that there's a big there's a big component for who's going to be Orson Welles the right. cast. But a lot of people look at it and go, oh, he's an old guy now. I was like, no, he's not the fat guy. No, he's, he's how, how how old is he in he's, that? He's thirty two yeah. when it starts. So yeah. he's still he's, he was big so young. Yeah, yeah. In, yeah. These people don't believe it, but he's yeah. still he's still young, thin, skinny, handsome, handsome guy. Right. You know, I mean, I mean, it's you know, I was talking to someone about it, and I was like, here are all the lovers that he had at that time. You know, and it's like, you know, it's, I mean, he's already he's already divorced from Rita Hayworth at this point, Ooh, and he's yeah. been with like Marilyn Monroe, and he's Ooh. with like Dolores Del Rio. So it's just you know, so they're like, oh, so it's some handsome guy. I was like, yes, <laughs> but yes, yeah, so it could right. be like some ma- major star could come right. play him. So, um, so there's that. So we're going. Um, so that's this one script. Um, and then there's this, and there's other script I've been wanting to do uh, since around last December. And I kind of pitched them the ideas about it last time we recorded. And they're like, "Dude, you need to like write that." And then so now I just but see, but see, my thing, that, yeah. Keith, and this is where I was going was the scripts. Here's what I found over the years. I'm sure you you figured out the same thing. The guys, is that my damn phone call? Yeah, that's your phone. Sorry, I apologize. The guys I've found who succeed, guys and gals, let's say it like that, the people, the writers, the ones who succeed in this industry are the ones you usually make it on a script that everybody, everybody tells you not to write. Definitely. Yeah. You, you agree? Yeah, yeah. You know yeah, what I mean? Did. And that's why I'm saying, and, and it's usually that one where it's like, I just had to write that thing that my agent said, why are you doing that? You're a comedy guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Whatever. No, I feel like for film <clears> and for TV... It's very unlikely that the thing you're writing is the thing that will get made, right. but that is the thing that'll get you to the thing that will get made, right. and right. that that it's it's really hard to predict which is going to be which, mm-hmm. um, and that you know so much of um, executives and producers, you, you guys know this as much right. as I do, that most of them just want to know you're good at writing, so you can write the thing they want you to write. Right. Um, and you never know which of the things are the things that you're originating will be the one that will just line up with the right person in the right way, that it just happens to fit the thing they mm-hmm. already want to do. Right. And then that's the one that will get made. Right. Oh, that's see, because that's this thing I say all the time about people. I, I say nobody wants to make your movie. No. They, <laughs> if, 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 um, if the movie you write gets made, it's because that's a story idea that someone else has been wanting to do. Right. Or, or like, oh, this fits exactly what I'm thinking. Right. Exactly. And, and you just wrote it. There, there'll be a few times where <clears throat> something will stand out so much that it'll it'll make someone realize it's what they actually wanted to do. They mm-hmm. just didn't realize they wanted to do it yet. Right, right. Um, and there's a few things that can do that. But most of the things get made because it's the type of thing someone already wanted to make, and then they found the right fit for that. For right. That type. Right, 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 right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, I will say on the, okay. on the Orson Welles <clears throat> thing, for sure that sounds like a European co-production that you could put together as like an uh, Italian-French co-production or oh, something completely, like that. Completely, and that, completely. That, that makes it very compelling in the independent world mm-hmm. just because it's so hard right now to make American indies. But mm-hmm. European indies have so much just sort of mm-hmm. free money that shows up that, uh, yeah, you should pursue that. Oh, I, 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 I am. I, I totally am. I'm going to tell you, and I'm very, very, very much, and he knows I'm very much a stickler on scripts. He's going to get a nod for this. Oh, that's great. It's off the chain. Yeah. And everybody who reads is like, that's the best script I read this year. You know what I mean? Yeah, then go do it. You should. Yeah. 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 I mean, a lot of people. I, I mean, I know I know, Uncle you know, Keith over here. He might know somebody. <laughs> yeah. That's I all mean, I'm it's saying. just, you know what? It, but I'll tell you, it's the, the <clears throat> thing is, is that like I've, you know, I, I usually write science fiction and action stuff uh, and some crime. 
Um, but this is a story that 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 everybody tells you not to write. It's, didn't it's, it? it's not. It's, 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 it was, <laughs> it's not even that. But it's a, the the story behind it is a story about the reason why I wanted to just come out here and make movies because like I had you know like so many people you watch movies as a kid and you love them and then you think wow could I do it or it's such or the Hollywood dream is so kind of like beyond everyone's you know just kin of what to do. But when I was in college and I was, you know, and I was a finance major and I, that th- once I was staying up there one summer just to, to take some classes and his Othello had been rediscovered and it was on this roadshow thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw it and I like sat through like two screenings of it because I was like, A, you know, like, is this movie going to come around again? Because they're roadshowing it. So, mm-hmm. so what's the opportunity of it going to be like anything? Um, but it was such a fascinating movie. I was just so enthralled by how he made it because it, one thing, you know, to make a movie in the late 40s to have it look like it could fit in the mid-90s type of like that speed of the cutting and the angles of, of like a music video, I was like, this is so ahead of his time. It's mm, insane. Yeah. And then I was like, how did he make this? When did he make it? Because I don't, cause, cause you don't hear about it a lot. You hear right. about Touch of Evil and Ambersons and Kane. And then I was like... Oh, it took him four years, and like it almost killed him. And I was like, Jesus Christ! Like, you know, and 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 he never spoke about it a lot in those interview books he has with Bogdanovich. But it was so fascinating to me, and I so so wanted to like see how he made it and pull back the curtain, pull back the curtain, Mm -hmm. and then and then I was like, you know, for a guy who at twenty four makes what everyone was saying was, you know, for fifty years were considered like the best sum of all time. You know, well, what happens your career and what's the follow up? You know, and 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 I just was like, there's a story there about why because 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 you look at it and you're like, this would be like if Steven, you know, like if Steven Spielberg disappeared after making Jaws, mm, yeah, right, and you'd be like, well, what happened? Because you right. just made one of the greatest horror films and the biggest blockbuster. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what you know, like just part of the germination, you know. And then you know, it's, it's like full of icons too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actors are going to yeah. want to play icons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I see it. That's good. That's good. So, with that, if you guys are grown, let's go ahead and get into the show. (laughs) We just spend like 10 minutes talking about bullshit. That's all. That's fine. We spend an hour talking about bullshit. Exactly. So, let's welcome to the show Keith. Am I pronouncing it right? Calder? Calder, yeah. Calder. Um, Producer. You guys look him up. He has done all kind of movies that we're going to get into as we get into this thing right here. Um, so welcome to the show, Keith. We appreciate you, man. Thank you. I, I appreciate you guys. I'm happy right. to be here. So you, you were standing offline. You got to tell the people how you, how you ran into Keith. So about two years ago, I saw, I was just, you know, I was just, uh, you know, on Twitter, I saw a tweet that he wrote that said, when people make a bad movie, it's like pissing in the pool. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I got to follow this guy because that's such a great... That's a t-shirt right it's, there. It is, it is a t-shirt. It totally is. It, 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 and our, our, our t-shirts are coming. So. Awesome. Um, but, but, so I've been, I was following you and just, you know, and, and there's always great wisdom and advice and thoughts about movies and things that you like. Just Your Twitter feed is really fantastic. But it was just, it was just the other week you were saying that people ask you to come on podcasts and you don't really necessarily do it, but you, you would do it for... A podcast that was women and people of color, yeah. And I was like, "Oh, this is us right. perfectly," because yeah. that's what we do. And uh, and and I, so I reached out to you, and I was I, I'm happy you came because you know, like I like to do. Mo- I mean, you know, people listen to the show and they love talking to us about TV and everything. And I'm just like, but movies are so fa- right. fascinating to me, and I can love. I, can the I just interject? Story. Yes, just for a second. I apologize to interrupt you. Is can I just ask you a question? though? we're just starting to get to know yeah, you yeah, now. Of course, of course. But as soon as you said that, what spoke to me. It reminded me of like, oh, so Keith must be like the film version of Glenn Mazzara. 
You feel me? Yeah. Like like the the one who who I don't know if you know who Glenn Mazzaro is, but Glenn Mazzaro, familiar, but I'm not sure why. Huge huge EP. He like ran um, Walking well, Dead. Oh, of course, yeah, and, yeah you know, yeah, and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he is a good friend of both of ours. He is like one of the biggest advocates at the Writers Guild. The 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 power, you know, white man in in Hollywood who looks out for all of us. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I got a sense just from you the way you said. It, I was like, oh, so there is a white producer. Who was like, fuck all these other white shows. Let me come on some shows that represent diversity and all that other stuff. So I think I think there's some. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I look to me, I look at. I don't mean there's only. No, 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 no. I mean, <laughs> it, it, listen, there's not as many as there should be right. for sure. But uh, um, I get invited to be on panels and I get invited to be on podcasts. Mm-hmm. And for me, for panels, for festivals, I I won't go on a panel unless it, there's diversity on the panel. I, oh, I awesome. don't need another white man mm-hmm. voice on it. Right. And I feel like with podcasts. I mean, come on, podcasts are a very white male medium, and Absolutely. it's nonsensical that it is that right. way. Um, so I don't need to help promote that. Interesting. That's not, isn't that fascinating? It is fascinating. I, I find that fascinating. So that's, that's interesting. Well, you it, know, it tells me a lot about you yeah, in a yeah, good way. T- yeah, yeah. Because to me, I feel like, you know, people, we have a very big audience that's mm-hmm. international, and it's <laughs> interesting because we, people always tell, because I meet people on the street all the time. Who recognize me because of my voice? They'll hear me speaking from like in line or something, and they go, "Hey, are you the?" I was like, "I'm like, it's weird." <laughs> um, it always strikes me as the weirdest thing. I was like, "What?" But it's interesting because they always say you tell us things about the industry that is, you know, it's it's not what's in school. It's it's not what you hear on other podcasts, you know. And I just, but I feel like we're kind of in a time where. It's tough to make movies, but it's always been tough to make movies. Yeah, sure. But I feel like there's interesting opportunities to make movies now, and that when movies get made that say something very interesting about the culture in a way that um, it's not being addressed, or just about how they want to tell a story is interesting, um, because the thing I let people know all the time is, it's so hard to make a television show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To write one, you don't know how. You, I mean, and, and 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 if your script is amazing, it still doesn't mean that it's going to get done. You <laughs> <Yeah>. know. Whereas <laughs> if you have a really great script, you can go and find the, a feature. You can go find the money. Right. You can mm-hmm. go and get this movie yeah. made and put it out there. And I feel like that's where a lot of people who are writers um, are kind of like. I, I think there's this this glamour they want from TV. Mm-hmm. But there's something exciting about, about about movies still to me that mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, like should be celebrated. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I it's funny because I think a lot about as someone who's done almost all features for the last fifteen, sixteen years, about twenty movies, and and have been approached a lot about doing television in large part because the types of movies we make have kind of turned into what Absolutely. cable and streaming television Absolutely. have become. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I've thought a lot about what the difference is between film and TV. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what I come back to um, is I feel like film, I think why I've had a hard time thinking in terms of television is I really like endings. Mm-hmm. Like I think I think about story in terms of, of paths leading towards an ending. And mm-hmm. so it's taken me a while to, even though I watch a lot of television, it's given me a, taken me a long time to figure out how do I take my extensive story and apply it to a medium where it's ongoing mm. rather than something that's designed to to come to a culmination? That totally makes sense. Um, so that's mm-hmm. part A. And then part mm-hmm. B is that I feel like um, I, I produce with my wife and mm-hmm. we've been together for a long time, working together for a long time. And uh, a lot of what we bring to a project 
is 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 um, encouraging a level of polish and continuing to work on something and to, to try to get obviously nothing can ever be perfect, mm-hmm. but there's a there's a there's an achievable you can grasp the entirety of a movie in your head in an achievable way that allows you to continue to add elements that are resonating with each other because you know where it's all going. Right. You know kind of what all the pieces are. And I, I have a hard time figuring out how we would approach TV in the same way because you don't really know where it's going. You don't know what's really happening in season two. Even friends of mine that run TV shows where they they kind of say in public, it's like, oh, yeah, we always knew it was going to go there. Right. They don't know. <laughs> they know like a general yeah, but yeah, idea. It's a, it's a little maybe, speckle. Yeah, right. the characters kind of go yeah. in here. But three episodes in, this right. actor's not as good as you thought they were mm-hmm. going to be. This other person's great. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, this the production designer's not really doing a great job. Yeah. The DP is. And suddenly the whole well, thing Sometimes shifts. they drop your budget season For two. For sure. So, yeah. Yeah. Or sometimes you think you're going to be three seasons and you're five seasons. Or you, right. you think you're going to be six seasons and you're three seasons. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everyone ends up being one season. Right. So who knows? Right. But I, I do find that, that the ability to craft something, um, I understand that more in features. Because it, it comes from a point of view of, I know that I can make a decision that's happening in scene number two because I know how that plays out five scenes later. I know it plays out an hour later. And I know that at the end of the movie, this is where you want people to feel right. that moment. Right. Well, that's a really fantastic point. And I, and I totally, as a writer, director, I... I always think about how this is going to end, like mm-hmm. what the story is going to, you know, and it, I, I, a lot of it comes to this, it's, it's, it's kind of like a, like, it's kind of like a throwaway quote, but I think about it a lot. This thing that Hitchcock said, he, he was like, look, if, if you want a great movie, then you need like five good scenes and an ending, yeah. you know, <laughs> sure. and I mean, yeah. and it, you know, whatever, but then you say, but he's like, yeah, the ending is everything. And I, and I almost feel like, you know, if the movie is a bad ending, you didn't like the movie. Yeah. You know, so you really got to be crafting the ending so much. And then, you know, the end, the endings get reshot in movies all the time. As they test them and go, yeah. that didn't like, you know, like that didn't deliver on what you set up for us. Right. But that's, I think, the same kind of something that like that I wrestle with, too, in writing television is that. I'm always thinking about how this is going to end. You know, yeah. like like this is going to take us where, mm-hmm. and then you and, and you can't ever do. Particularly in a pilot, you're like, that's not. I'm not. I'm not ending this. Yeah. I'm just stopping at a point that makes you go, okay. So tell me more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a little. It's just tricky for me. You know, I've seen so many movies. Like everyone who watches, you know, listens. To this He's a cinephile. Knows, if you don't know, no, I've, I've, tell, I've, yeah. I've <laughs> seen so many. Yeah. And 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 right now, I do watch a lot of television, but I just find what people do. Particularly with character, like people always yeah. say that that character, the TV is always character, so much character, as if to say that's not in movies. That's true. No, but it, and, yeah, and, I, 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 I'm 100 percent with you because I feel like in film, all of your character, if you're doing it the way that I think films should be made, all of your characters and their character relationships and the interrelationships are in service of a story that goes towards an ending. So those dynamics come to a culmination. Mm-hmm. The idea is that this is the, to a certain degree, this is the only story that could really be told about these people that people would want to watch because it's the most interesting part of their lives. Or it's the, it's the thing that allows them to kind of become the person that you know they need to be to then not have to have huge obstacles. Um, whereas in, in, in television, the approach to character is, is almost flipped on its head. The, the idea of who the characters are and how you define what these character relationships are going to be are for um, continuing to be interesting for a long period of time, sure. which inherently means that there isn't an, uh, a solution that they can get to within two hours of time, right? right? right. Um, or that, or that the, the nature of the conflict between two characters is un, un, insurmountable. So you can get 
you know, hundreds of hours worth of content out of these two characters fighting with each other. I think you look at a show like Billions, which I think is really interesting, because oh, that's, that's feature it. writers going into TV. <laughs> right. And I think they figured out the nature of TV allows us to take a mix of those two blends now, right? Because mm-hmm. you can have these two guys where it feels like um, they are at an, impossible for them to ever come to the point where they're ever on the same side. But because this TV has such a long template you can work with, mm-hmm. you, can, you can actually get to a closing of that relationship so they do now find themselves on the right. same side. I think that's really exciting because I, 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 it, it, you take a feature version of what a character template can look like but because of the length of time you have a TV, you can you can actually fight your way through right. that to the you next can version. Slow down, yeah. Well, yeah. not just slow down, but that you can you can do a full arc mm-hmm. and then keep going, right. and then find a way that the keep going is still compelling. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. So let me ask you, just so the kids who are listening, I call everybody kids. Yeah. Where are you from? How you got into the game? Uh, so I'm from London originally, okay. and then I moved to the states when I was nine. I okay. lived in LA for a couple of years, and then New York. Um, and then lived in New York through college. I went to Carnegie Mellon. I went to Pittsburgh for college. Oh, really? uh, moved back to London for a year. I worked for a producer. What, what, what year were you in Carnegie Mellon? 97 to 2001. Okay. Right. I know a lot of people who went there. It was, I was in the business school. There's a lot. There's an amazing acting oh, program yeah. there. I was there at the same time as Josh Gad. Mm-hmm. And we weren't friends. We didn't know each other at all then. And then worked on a movie later and realized we were at the same college at oh, the same time. And I had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, my brother was there for a year. Was he? Freshman year. He was there in... Um, Chip or the other brother? Alex. Alex. Uh, so was that? It was maybe 96? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, just before yeah. I was there. But but his his roommate got killed. Oh God! Uh, yeah. And so he didn't go back. It just kind of like broke him. Yeah, mm. I yeah. could see that. Yeah. yeah, his roommate was from Pittsburgh, and mm-hmm. it just he got shot on a weekend, and it just yeah. And whenever I think about it, I think of like Blair Underwood and you know people that I know that went there. Yeah. Like well, the acting, the acting and and musical theater program in mm-hmm. particular is is very strong. Right. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry to hear about your brother's roommate though yes yeah, it's, it's really affected his life and he got he got into a, a religious cult after the it's just <laughs> there's a movie yeah there. it's a lot man it's a lot yeah. It's, I mean, yeah he was yeah but back to you so, yes and and so you so went I, to london I, yeah you worked the, the quick the very fast forward version i went to london uh for a year i worked for a producer named jeremy thomas who's a, yes. kind of a legendary yes yes um independent producer mm-hmm. produce uh mona lisa and stuff like that no, he he. Well, he did. I don't actually know if he did Mona Lisa. He did. He did the um, the Last Emperor. Yeah, and did. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, that's him. yeah, yeah, yeah. He's amazing. Um, worked for him for a year. Then I came out to L.A. I went to the Peter Stark Producing Program oh, at okay. USC for grad school. Uh, interned a few different places. Um, realized the assistant up path was like absolutely not for me. Um, started a company out of grad school um, and then started making movies pretty much right away. Did you, um, did you, did you use the people around you who were in school? Like I did, the, the scripts yeah. that they had or what did you start there or what did you do? I did. Well, when we started, so the, the first thing I would say just to put the big like elephant in the room out there is like, mm-hmm. I come from like success. Like my, my, my father was in the music industry. Okay. There was like a level of like you know, there's a term of privilege. Like I come from like such an extreme level of privilege mm-hmm. that it's like such a head start that it's my path is not always that helpful because of that. And I'm aware yeah. of that. And right. and I think that, that, um, I don't think I've ever heard anybody admit like that. That's, I love, you no, inter- but it's the he's an interesting dude. 
You're an interesting dude. Yeah, I, I told you, I, man. I appreciate Follow you. his Twitter feed. That's I'm telling you, there's such is this there's gems That's you drop that I don't know if you know they're gems, right. but they are. They're just they're just these clever kind of like the point of view is like okay, just right. I, I'm, I'm I'm like I'm gonna be real about you. Do this, and it's very it's grateful to hear this from you. Yeah, no, I might listen. That's reality. There's no point not looking reality in the face. No, right? well, no, because, well, see, you know what? Like, like I wrote this TV pod a long time ago. Uh, it's called the Soul Cages, mm-hmm. and it opens up, and it's about this uh, guy who's uh, he's kind of like a um, kind of like Tony Robbins, you know. And I have he's this. It opens up with this big speech he's giving, and he lets people know he's like, you know, people who have success don't like to admit how they have it. They like yeah. to think it's all about them. They mm-hmm. and th- and that's wrong. Trump, you yeah, know, that's that's <laughs> wrong. And, and, and it's the lie that everyone has been told to believe right. that you can just yes, you can do it on your own. He's like, right. that doesn't happen. Like everyone has people who are successful usually have some sort of help that they might forget. Well, that and that's the thing I I, I talk about a lot, especially in independent film, mm-hmm. is that um, you know. On a podcast, on in the press, in interviews, in Q and A's at film festivals, all you ever see are the people that were successful, right? And you hear them talking about their perspective mm-hmm. as if by taking that path, that's why they became successful, right? Whereas there's you don't hear the hundreds of other people that are listening to that thing saying, "I'm I literally took the same path and I'm sitting here at home, not successful," right? And it, it's just the nature of it. I, I think that that success has a voice in the in the in the world, and and failure doesn't. Cool. Um, so the, it's, it's, it's the nature. The, really. the first movie that I ever sold was this horror movie. And the, the guy who produced it made a bunch of these, like, movie. he made like three of them a year or whatever. And, but he was a trust fund, trust fund kid. Yeah. So he, I'm like, and I, I don't care what he did to do it. Yeah. He, I sold my movie. Yeah. He's still, <laughs> you exactly, know what I mean? Yeah. So anyway. So, so, yeah. but, so, so <clears throat> this is interesting. I mean, I, I don't want to cut you off your story because yeah. this is an interesting question to ask you because even though you come from success and you, like you know, like you come from the Peter Shark thing, you still got to find a good script. Yeah, exactly. So what I would say is that when when we were starting our company, it was my wife and I uh, started Snoot Entertainment, which is our production company, and I started a, a second company at the same time with two friends I went to the Peter Stark program with, uh, Joe Norotter and Felipe Marina, mm-hmm. and we kind of had both for for the first four or five years we had both companies going, and then Joe and Felipe kind of went off and did their own thing, and Jess and I have been doing our own thing since then. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we started. Even though, obviously, we're coming from a point of privilege where we're able to actually start a company and start trying to make things and put things together, uh, that doesn't really matter to the agents of the world and so on because they, you still haven't made anything. You still don't have any. You you still have no real credits. credits. (laughs) Yeah, there's nothing. There's no reason why they should give a 23-year-old a a script of a a movie they think should get made. So we knew really early on that the path of finding material through the traditional um, uh, sources was was somewhat pointless mm-hmm. um, so we went to really at the time this is what our approach we decided to take was going to all of the different film school programs really all across the US mainly a little bit outside and look at well what are what's who is coming out of these programs right now what mm-hmm. are the thesis projects what are mm-hmm. the scripts that are out there and we read we just read them all um, and one of the ones we found was uh, a script called All the Boys Love Mandy Lane, mm-hmm. which was uh, an <laughs> AFI weirdly it was an AFI thesis project for a production designer and so his thesis project was production designer Tom Hammock, who we've made a lot of movies with now. Mm-hmm. His thesis project was how he would approach the production design to this screenplay that a friend of his in the AFI program wrote. Um, and so we got our, our hands on, on that script and, and quickly realized that this was a movie that could be made at a very low budget, mm-hmm. under a million. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a, a teen slasher horror movie, which 
um, is, is a genre I like, but also is a genre that there's been a long history of success of low budget productions that kind of have real value right. um, in the world. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I think that we all thought um, between kind of our skill set and the skill set of these people that were coming out of AFI that were sort of involved <laughs> with this project, that we could go down to Texas and, and Bastrop, this little town outside of Austin, <laughs> and, um, and just go make a movie together. Right. And so we put together the budget, which um, I think started at six hundred and fifty, and then six hundred fifty thousand. And That's then, a good way to start. That's yeah, a good point. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's, I mean, for us, we were able to, to raise that money. And, mm-hmm. and I think it's not an insurmountable amount of money to raise for, for, for a lot of people who are trying to make a movie. Right. I, I, I think that, that um, we then, you know, over the course of making it, beefed up the budget a little bit. I think it ended up at 700, 725 or something okay. like that. Um, and uh, it, was a, it was a tight shoot. You know, we were like, we were building furniture and, right. and living in... Oh, the hotel we lived in was eight dollars a night. Um, <laughs> the reason the reason it was eight dollars a night is that um, it was previously the last tenants of the hotel were hurricane evacuees. Wow! And so they couldn't actually get normal people to stay at the hotel. Um, and part of so us, so it wasn't stayed. as bad as we're envisioning. It was no, it was like it was like for sure. Our director had bed bugs through the whole shoot. Um, and, and yeah, it's it, but it's you know this is low budget independent. Right. Filmmaking, um, and the, this movie all was a Mandy Lane. We this is two thousand five. We shot the movie mm-hmm. two thousand. And our plan was make this movie super cheap. None of us had agents. I think the director had a manager at the time. <clears throat> I think he signed with UTA while while he was making the movie. Uh, the director is John Levine, who actually has Long Shot out this weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, so we um, we made the movie, and the plan was always. We're going to take this movie to the Toronto International Film Festival, mm-hmm. premiere it in the Midnight Madness section, because that's kind of where horror movies would go and premiere at that time, mm-hmm. and then sell the movie to, to a distributor. That was like the plan going in. It's exactly what happened. We made the movie. It, we submitted Blind to Toronto. It was just like, we didn't, realize, we didn't realize most movies at film festivals get in because the programmer, you, yep. a director or someone, or a sales agent, or something. we didn't realize that was the case. We just sent it in the way you, you think you're supposed to do it, mm-hmm. got picked, um, had then all these different sales agents sort of fighting with each other to represent the movie, took it to Toronto. This was 2006, I believe. Um, we were the Saturday night Midnight movie, which wow. is like the premiere that's, that's, slot you yeah. want. Yeah, the pro, the programmer uh, Colin Geddes, who was running Midnight Madness, loved the movie. He was it was like his his like movie he was championing mm-hmm. um, in the lineup, and um, we brought on CAA and and a sales company called Submarine to to sell the movie, mm-hmm. and um, which were you know great sales agents. Um, it was ju- the year that Harvey Weinstein had and Bob Weinstein had just launched the Weinstein Company, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and they had shown up to Toronto wanting to make a big splash. And um, you know the mo- midnight movie happens, premiere happens. We're standing outside the theater, and Harvey's like, "I want to buy this movie." And like, <laughs> um, suddenly, we're like negotiating the deal to sell the movie in the alley behind the movie theater. Wow, so wow. this is like our very, very first movie. Such ridiculous like luck, and 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 <laughs> I was just thinking, it, Keith is like, "It's gonna always be yeah, like." Well, this. that's so that's where I'm going to this, right? So that's where I'm going. So so, so you know, we sell this movie for a lot of money. Like it's it's like we're all successful right away. Um, and um, the the Glenn Basner at the time was running um, foreign sales for the Weinstein Company. He's now like the best foreign sales agent in the world. Mm. He then sells off foreign on the movie for more than they bought it for from us. Um, it's it's a big success story for everyone. Yeah. We're excited. We're all going <laughs> home, the conquering champions of Toronto, <laughs> buying houses. It's, yeah, no, it's like the whole thing. And then and then um, you know next week we we're like okay. 
but now we have to fly to New York because they're, they're Bob and Harvey are going to hold a test screening for the movie. And we, uh, we show up, we were like, okay, sure. That's the next step in the process. So this is going to be amazing. We show up in New York and, um, are going to the theater to, to, you know, so we've met back up a little bit. We've met Harvey. We've kind of sold the movie. Bob wasn't at Toronto. Yeah. So Harvey bought the movie for Bob because Bob's the horror guy. Right, right, and right, Harvey right. is the the the. Try, the well, we all know. It. We all know. We all know. We all know where this story goes. Um, so um, we're going up the escalator to the to the test screening, and the first thing we see as the audience are lining in is just Bob in his sweatsuit, sweatpants, screaming at Harvey about how much he hates the movie. What? In front of the... Oh, in front of the crowd going in, in front of us, the filmmakers, coming wow. up the elevator, escalator, just like tearing into him. He hates this fucking movie. I can't believe you bought this movie. What sure. the fuck is wrong with you? Like this whole thing. <laughs> and we're like, oh, okay, okay. Well, let's see how this thing goes. The test screening starts and it's clear, like we, we made our first movie. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm proud of the movie. I think it's really exciting. But like, we didn't really know what we were doing. So there's a lot of stuff that we're watching the movie and we're like, oh man, we should have done this. We should have done sure, this. This sure. is so, this is an amazing learning experience. We're kind of seeing how the movie plays. Mm-hmm. We're coming out of it sort of ex- halfway through we're excited. We're like, okay, we're learning so much. It's amazing. We're, we, can, we, can, we can really use this. And then the, the center channel speaker blows out in the test screening, <laughs> oh, swear to God. And you can't hear the dialogue for like the last third of the movie. Oh my God. Uh, and I'm like, this is weird. Why are we still continuing the movie? And, right. and it's like, no, no, no. It's, you got you to gotta finish the movie. You can't stop a test screening in the middle of the screening. We're like, wow. oh, okay. Uh, scores come back and it's like terrible. Like we've tested terribly. Next, we all kind of go back to, to New York and are, you know, obviously bummed and, and are talking to each other. But we're like, look, but... We saw what worked. Like we know that okay, if we change the opening here, we can maybe you know change some things here. We can get the scare to play better. There's like all, we're practical people. We're thinking about okay, well, it didn't test as well as we thought it would. Mm-hmm. We still it's a tiny budget movie. We can spend a little more money, really get it over the edge, and 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 be super happy. Next day we go in and meet with um, with Harvey in New York, and he's just like tearing into what idiots we all are, and we've made this horrible movie and all this stuff. Wow. And we're just like, okay, I mean, it's our first movie. Yeah. What what do you want to do? Like let's let's make some changes to it. And he's like, yeah, you have to do all these changes, all these changes. We're like, yeah, sure, let's do changes. And he's like, and you have to pay for them all. Like, (laughs) what are you talking about? (laughs) You bought the movie. Like you saw the movie, bought the movie. If you want to make changes, we're happy to work with you and make the changes. But we're not going to just start spending money. Like it's your movie now. Um, And they refuse to ever pay for any changes. But they still wanted all these changes to be made. I think we ended up doing some things. We were just like, let's extend an olive branch here of some sort. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, they, because they had sold International so well, more oh, than they bought the movie for. They still got delivered at. Yeah, so, uh, so yeah. no, but they, so they just delivered the movie International and just said, we're not going to honor any of our domestic distribution. Wow. Uh, so, it's, it's, it, this is such a long well, this story. Is great we take stuff. up the whole, this is great up the whole podcast talking about just this it's movie. It's all good. It's all but good. It, it was a fascinating first step into the film industry because in some ways it was such a huge success mm. um, that we learned all the wrong lessons from mm-hmm. the success, right? Because we felt like, oh, we could just go make anything right. and you show up to a festival and someone's going to buy it for a lot of money. Like that's just, that's what <laughs> happens. That's, that's what the film industry is, which is so far from the truth. Um, and it took us a few movies, including you know one of the ones that we were talking about before, like we mm. made this movie, Bunraku, which was a pretty big budget movie where... We just thought, oh, you just go make a big budget movie and, and suddenly everyone wants to go buy that. It's not, not really the way it works. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say it took us really five years to really learn how the film industry worked mm. and, and probably three years more than it had to be 
just because of early success giving mm, us this right. weird impression of how things right. are supposed to go. So that's like the one side. The other side is that it made me so nervous of distributors. It made me so, like there were so many things from the process of working with, with Harvey and them mm. where it was like, we, we started self-sabotaging in other ways based uh, off of okay, because of that, that being that the first trauma. experience you that, have. Yeah, yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, that makes sense. That makes sense. Anyway, so the, 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 but the, the, I do think that the thing, I've, I was, Talking about this with the the, the guys that produced uh, Napoleon Dynamite, because mm-hmm. they had some similar. Th- Wait, Napoleon Dynamite is obviously a much bigger success than, than our movie, but they ran through similar issues where it was the first movie they produced, right. and they learned all the wrong lessons hmm. because it's any, any. Obviously, you're much better off having success, hundred percent. There's no denying that. But you learn weird, weird lessons when the first thing you do is successful. Because <laughs> right. it's just you, 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 you haven't been, you can't process which of the things were successful for good reasons and which right. were for luck and which were for bad reasons. Mm-hmm. And you, you just have no way of, of, of um, pointing your compass in the right direction right. creatively. Well, mm-hmm. well, so this is what's interesting about that because the film industry is so unforgiving that if yeah. you, so that if you are, if your first film comes out and it's a failure, yeah. Then you might not get another opportunity to do another, you know, yes, to do, very so true. Espe- especially well, I would say very true if it's a failure relative to the, to the size of the production, right? Yeah. So like if you if you make I have so many friends that that their path in was making movies for $100,000 mm-hmm. or or you know, Adam Wingard's first movie was a $7,000 budget or something like that. If that movie fails, that's still a yeah. success. You know, you know, know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah. it's, you yeah, still you made, made a movie. movie. You still made a movie. So it's, it's, it's yeah. all, it's all in scale. Like success <laughs> and failure is in scale to what, to what the, the, the true, ambitions true, were. True. Yeah, well, yeah, cause yeah. I, that's an interesting point you said about cause he still made the movie. Cause I think the thing that really, you know, I think what happens a lot of times what, you know, producers and people are afraid of, afraid of when they hire, first time directors or stuff like that is since you haven't made a movie you yeah. don't know what it means to finish the film yes. to finish the whole thing and get out and get it seen right. and, and all to that kind it. of stuff yeah. lock it and there's right. a, there's a lot of you know there's a there's that uh uh you know I read this book called um the 80 20 principle sure and it's all about how like you know that the, the, there's 20% that does like 80% of yeah. it and it's kind of like and it's usually the last 20% of making a movie is everything yeah. you know the posts yeah. and all that kind of stuff and it's like that's where i mean i've seen so many movies friends of mine do stuff destroy it completely in post don't know how to do it yep. Arguments among all the people involved. You know, I mean, a friend of mine did a movie called American Gun, mm-hmm. and the the writer. If my, my friend said write it, he said the director. He shot a good movie, yeah, but he began to like sabotage himself in the editing, and the mm-hmm. editor was like, went to my friend and was like, "Dude, you have to." Um, uh, you, you, have to, you have to rein him in with what he's doing. So we, we've had that. We've we've had to do that on a couple of movies, and and I and I get it when you're when you're directing a movie. It's so hard to maintain objectivity, uh, and it's so hard to to get a sense of to get out of your own head in terms of what's working and what's not working. And so, you some directors that leads them down the path of of trying extreme things that that don't need to be done, and some directors that leads them down the path of being afraid to try anything because because if it works somewhat, they're afraid anything they do will break it working somewhat. Um, and I do think that's a really hard thing to do. I, and I will say it's it's interesting because <laughs> I, I think I. Jess and I, I think, have reputations as being good producers for first-time directors, and I think that's that's only true because we kind of you really have to be like you mm-hmm. can't 
you have to bring a lot to the table as a producer if you're working with a first-time director. Right. I think that we're actually much better producers with second-time directors because it 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 gives us a a, a groundwork to build off of. Um, because I, I think everyone's experience in their first movie as a director, I find there are certain aspects of it where they come out of it either either they come out of it having learned lessons or they come out of it having learned no lessons. Right. And I can sit down and have a meeting with the director and find out really quickly if their if their experience on the first movie led to them understanding what they did right, what they did wrong, what they would do differently next time, mm. or if they came out of it either just thinking that everything worked, which happens way more than you would think, or they come out of it um, having learned all the wrong lessons. Can and I, I yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say I was just just piggybacking off what you were talking about a moment ago. Um, when you're on the set and yeah. you guys are actually in production shooting, yeah. How do you work with your directors and how do you, if you see something go wrong, yeah. do you interject? I would, so I would say that the way that Jess and I work as producers, and I think, I think this is the way it is for a lot of very, very hands-on producers, mm-hmm. which is how we would describe ourselves, right. is that you, you kind of have to, I would say there's two different philosophical approaches to, to being a hands-on producer. Mm-hmm. One is that you are making everyone do things your way. And the other is that you are trying to figure out what are the things you need to do to work well within what the other people are right. doing. And I think that both both paths can be very successful. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the um, the people that are less effective are are aren't aren't willing to choose which of those paths they want to be on. Right. Uh, and I, and and I think that the worst thing you can be as a producer is someone who bounces back and forth between those two things because then you just create chaos and unreliability and and there, and you, people can't look to you for um, a clear-headed approach to what the film's going to mm-hmm. be. We're very much in that second group where it's it's we adjust we we have ways that we like things to be done, but most of what we're actually physically like actually doing on set is is um, is built around how that director works and how the stars work and how those department heads work, um, rather than forcing them to kind of do what we want. Right. Um, and I think that just in terms of having two producers working as a team, um, the way like we, are you by yeah. the monitor? So all the way the, time, the way we usually thing? split it out is that if. If things are generally smooth, we're usually both at the monitor. Mm-hmm. Um, if if there's either issues going on of things that have happened already, right. things that are going on that day, or things that are coming up, um, one of us will try to stay at the monitor, and one will kind of go off to deal with the other things. And, and depending on what the problems are, it or what where in the day we are, mm-hmm. it, it, it it can be different people. Right. There's also some directors that. Um, that really, really want us there with them, like at the monitor, right. in which case we both try to be there as much as possible. Mm-hmm. There's other directors where it's cl- it's clear that that we're we're all getting what we want from the movie, and having more people around the monitor is not helpful. In which case we're usually you know off doing other things and, right. stuff, and stuff like that. Um, I will say that at the point where we are now, most of the movies we make, we've had just we've made twenty movies, so we've just had more on-set experience than the directors we're working right. with. So we're working a lot with, nowadays, like a lot with sort of second, third-time directors mm-hmm. where, um, you know, they have obviously way more experience than us as being a director, right. but just in terms of the things that have to happen for running a movie to set. come out. Well, mm-hmm. not even say running the set, but more like, um, the, thing that, the thing that's interesting about filmmaking and about production is that it, it's very easy to forget that at the end of the day, the the movie is the movie, right? So so the the the, re- the requirements of production sometimes take over from the requirements of getting the footage you need to make to yeah. make the movie. So a lot of what we're doing is is trying to always have the production serve 
getting the movie. Right. Um, and, and sometimes that means y- you are going over schedule and over mm-hmm. budget and things like that because it's better to spend that money now right. than to sit there in the editing room and realize you don't have it. Right. Um, sometimes it means, no, you know what? We're ne- we have it, and now we're just spinning our wheels, getting footage that doesn't matter. Uh, and then it's how do you sk- how do you pull that back? Okay. Um, mm. What I will say is like on, on a on a personality approach, um, we go into every I go into every, every film shoot saying that there's no yelling on the set unless the oh, actors God, have yes. to yell for mm-hmm. the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no people should be working efficiently, but you shouldn't be running around on the set. Mm-hmm. Like it should not feel like a chaotic environment. Right. It's not good for people on the crew, and it's definitely not good for the cast. Um, Any time that. I and I and I and I hope that our cast and directors approach things the same way we do, which is that if if there's a point where there's a real conflict, to take the people aside and talk to them privately. Uh, I think that 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 um, strong conflicts on set in front of everyone, um, even if they are resolved for the best best you know re- result for the movie. Mm-hmm. That that conflict happened in front of everyone is generally bad for totally the, the production the production yeah. environment. I think um, a lot of people approach it differently. That that's that's my view, yeah. um, and I think that that the specifics of how sets run though is is, is a lot of time more up to the AD and the DP and the director. Mm-hmm. We kind of have our opinions and we sort of insert them where we can, but mm-hmm. usually we're inserting them during pre production, not on the day. If we actually have to be on the day, being like, no, it should be done this way. Right. I view that as a failure on our part because mm. that means that we didn't set up the structure the right way to begin mm-hmm. with. We didn't choose the right collaborators to work with. We we we're we're basically cr- trying to rush around solving problems that we should have solved five weeks before we started shooting the movie. Right. Yeah. Okay, I was curious because because I I consider myself being pretty a hands on yeah. producer when I when I work on things. But I found and you, you can tell me what you think too. But I, I found that for me, I kind of run the line between being one of the funniest people on the set having sure. a good time and being the one going, oh, no, we're not doing that. Yeah. <laughs> you know well, what I mean? I, I, that, that's the right approach. Like, I, I, I think the joke I make is that, like, my primary, primary job on set is to look like I'm not worried about anything. Right. Exactly. That is, that's never, it. Never let them see that's you sweat. It. No, 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 right. for sure. Like, you, you, so many problems go away mm-hmm. just by people looking at the person they think is, this person's in charge, right. and that person looks like they're cool with what's going on. So, okay, that's cool. Right. It's all good. Um, and inside, of course, I'm like cataloging everything and I'm worried about what's happening and I'm like, okay. Cutting yourself. And oh, my you God, God, yeah. oh my God, Listen, oh my and, God. And, exactly. And, and, and I'm trying, I'm, when I'm, I'm choosing one of the right moments to step in to say right. something and, and usually it's, Usually it's either way before the event or it's after the event. It's very, very hard to step in in the middle of something going wrong. And there are times where you have to do it. Um, A a simple example is when we were doing this movie, The Guest, there was a a, a stunt that we were supposed to be doing and the director was off shooting other footage and I was kind of there. And I think Jess was with the director as Mm -hmm. they were shooting other footage and I was there watching the run-throughs of the stunt. Mm -hmm. And it was really clear this thing was not prepared properly, not Mm going to work. Um, it was more of an SFX gag, mm-hmm. and, and it was going to be dangerous. Right. And I was like, look, it's coming off the schedule. We're not doing it today. <laughs> Reconceiving this thing. It's going to happen in a week. Let's, right. let's meet up at lunch and figure out something else. That's your in the job. Afternoon. Yes. That's my job. Yeah. Yes. And, and sometimes you have to do that on the day, and there's right. no way to do it before. I couldn't do it before. You couldn't see it. You couldn't see it. Well, see, I mean, like. I, sometimes the environment forces yeah. you to go, oh, yeah, this was fine in the room. Yes. But now we're sure. here. Well, that's the, the I mean, this is, this is the nitty gritty of it is that on SFX stuff, <clears throat> what I've learned is a lot of the time, and I don't know why it is this way, a lot of the time SFX 
crew are mm. reluctant to do a full run through ahead of time. Hmm. And I think part of that might be that it, it, it can be expensive and they're worried about budget or, or it's, it's, um, they're not thinking through sometimes the, 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 um, the multiple things that have to happen at the same time. Okay. So they'll be testing individual. So they're just marking everything. Yeah, so they'll, they'll yeah. test individual elements discreetly. And, and I always try to push for like, look, in the, on the day when we're shooting this, mm-hmm. it's not going to be just uh, someone's pocket goes on fire because there's a, a fire right. attack. It's going to be, it's an actor. There's, they're in the middle of a scene. It happens after, you know, five lines of dialogue mm-hmm. or it's, it's, you know, there's like a lot other aspects to it. Mm-hmm. There are all the crews there, the cameras here. Like what, can we do a test that actually feels more like what's going to happen during the production. Because I've had so many situations where you're seeing a test and you do the production and the production doesn't work at all right. because they just didn't do a full-blown right. test. I'm, That's a good note. I mean, like, yeah. I've, I, you know what, I did that one time. We were doing a movie and th- this thing we were directing and um, the, the, it, was, it, was, it was like squibs and, yeah. gun, and gunfire stuff. And the... And, and the weapons guy, he yeah, he like he didn't want to do it full on yeah. when we were testing. And he's like, Oh, it's gonna be fine, it's gonna be fine, it's gonna be fine. It was like an early short that we did. And I and I didn't I didn't know. Yeah. You know, like like he kept saying, Don't worry, it's gonna be there's there's gonna be the right amount of sparks and the right amount of blood. I just don't you know, and and, and we and we took his word for it. Yeah. You know, and then he we didn't shot. want to clean it up. <laughs> and he, you know, it was all this stuff and I was and, and then when we were shooting it, I was like, it's not gonna work. It yeah. didn't, and we're there on the day, and it was, and, and it was only like a, as a short, you know, we can't reschedule it. No, exactly. Right. So it was yeah. like, we get to do this now, and right. then we shot it, and I was like, it didn't look good. And mm-hmm. I was like, you know what? I mean, and, and you stuck with it, really. stuck with it. I mean, yeah. I, I remember he was saying, I remember I read somewhere, um, I, I, mean, I think it was John Wu or so, no, it was, what's his name? Uh, you know, uh, Sam Peckinpah, right? So yeah. I was, this is the time, it's like, and Sam Peckinpah was like, you know, like always put double loads in your blanks. Yeah. And I was like, okay, what's the deal for that? And he's like, because they're going to like give you this big. In the squib. In the like squib. In the, yeah, or, yeah, no, yeah. well, in the gun. In, in the blank. Okay. Yeah, 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 because cause he was like, if yeah. you, you want to see that muzzle flash, yeah. Then you, you wanna, I was like, yeah, I want to do that. So I was like, okay, cool. And and the and the weapons guy was like, you don't need to do all that. Mm-hmm. You know, just don't, don't worry about that. <laughs> and so we shot this thing, and and like you know, on so many of the takes, you know, we shot is like you can't see the muzzle flash yeah. on mm-hmm. the gun. Also, because a lot of times those muzzle flash will go off between the frames. That's right. Yeah. That's, oh, right. That, that's yeah. right. And yeah. he, and the, and I read later on as like if it's a double if it's a double yeah. double blank, then the muzzle flash is so big that it'll last yeah. it'll last okay. that time between the frame and that's why i didn't know and he just was like reluctant to that so and then we were stuck with it you yeah. know when we are like so now what do i do so now we just got to run this scene and this was like you know like we're getting visual effects to do that kind of work it was insane yeah and i was just like well we just gotta live with it now <laughs> just let everyone believe that he was shooting because he's pulling the trigger you know mm-hmm. yeah so um but yeah that's interesting it's an interesting point i mean you know like i feel that like i've Love producers who are very hands on during prep, mm-hmm. you know, and then on the day are 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 there to kind of just like to be in your ear mm-hmm. when something's going wrong mm-hmm. or hey, did you think about this? You know, like at that right moment, yeah. you know, because it it allows you. As a filmmaker, it's a trust thing too. It's a tru- you know? big yeah. trust thing, right. big big trust <laughs> thing, you know. Be, and it's and, it, and it's like you know, like I want. The DP and the producer to be able to, I, I, I want them to feel like they can come to me at any time and say, "Hey, we got to do this, or we got to yeah. change this, or I think you like you know I think you, you should get one more take on this, maybe mm-hmm. a different angle." Because, like you said, 
you're thinking about so many things as a director. Your yes, mind exactly. is in so many places mm-hmm. that someone who's objective, you can just like whisper in your ear and do it in a way that, you know, is not going to undercut like your authority on the set. Mm-hmm. Because the one thing that I've seen <clears throat> and I what I it's always sad is that when the crew realizes the director is not in charge. Yes, right. Exactly. And then it's like, well they don't want to even listen to him, you know? And yeah. then and then he's just then he's like a traffic cop right. who's a, who's a kid really. No, exactly. <laughs> you know? yeah. So it's terrible. Um And I do think I mean I'm also a big, big big proponent that the writer should the writer on should be on set. And really yes. most of the movies we've made <clears throat> It's the same writer initiated the project. Is in a, is the writer? Mm-hmm. We don't replace writers a lot on our, our films. That's good. Um, can you can you preach that to the choir? Though? I do. I mean, I talk about it all the time. But but uh, which is is definitely endeared me to writers, less right. so to directors. I would say. <laughs> but um, I I think that the the key key thing for a director on set is to be able to to. Be in the moment. Same same with the actors. To be in the moment with the actors and with the DP to make sure that the moment is working and they're getting that moment. Right. And then if they can go beyond that a bit, it's to make sure that that moment works really well within the scene. And then if they can go beyond that to that moment works within the film overall, that's great. That's amazing. That's like the best directors out there can really do all of those things. But I like to have the writer around and I like to have us around because it allows the director to really micro-focus on the moment in the scene and, to, and hopefully that that director can trust that we're also keeping an eye on how that fits in the overall picture. So it is, it is those things where it's like, oh, well, the actor... Because there's so many times where it's the actor will, will say the line slightly differently, right? Uh, either, even just an intonation, and it changes the meaning of that line. A lot of the time that doesn't... It's not like the end of the world for the movie, but there are a lot of cases where like, suddenly that means that the next scene doesn't work anymore because you think the character's coming in one way and now they're coming into a you know, right. totally different world right. or they've or they've kind of closed their arc too early because of the way that they're interacting. So you, you need to keep an eye on that stuff. At the end of the day the director's like, I appreciate that, I understand what you're saying, but like I think because of this it's gonna work this way. Then it's a hard situation because then you're like, well, director feels like it's this way, we all feel like it's the other way. Is this is this a case where we agree to kind of like make sure we're covered so we can do it both ways? Uh, or is it a situation where it's like, you know what, we got to back the director and you kind of it's it's you figure it out on on each project. Right. I always feel that That's why day 1 is so important. Yeah, I mean I that's the other I, I most the of the time I'd say <clears throat> most of our movies the stuff that's shot on day one, at least part of it gets shot again at some point later. Mm, interesting. Just because you're so you're still figuring it out. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, like I appreciate everyone saying, "Try it again." Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't. Feel, I mean, certain things you got to do. There's a vision that you have as a director. That's like, this is how we got to do this. Yeah. Performance stuff. You always want to try to give yourself the most flexibility as, as you can. And yeah. I, and I agree, I agree you can get in that situation where the actor did this and it changes the line and, it, and every, but you want to be so, you know, cause you're going to be the editing room yeah. and you're like, God, I wish I had another way to say this line. hundred yeah. percent. You know, uh, because, because now I'm see like, for reasons that you can't even you, think of on can, the day. You can't, it's, cause you just don't know like some no certain can. pace things or things like right. that. You just, you can't capture that on the day. You can't know that you've captured it right on the day. Yeah. I mean, well, some, some directors seem like they can, but it's, I mean, it's the rarity. What's his say. name? Uh, Steve Soderbergh. I don't know how he does it, oh but he's like, just, we just shoot it now and edit it tonight and then we're good. Right. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. So um, we have an episode dropping tomorrow where we talk about directing episodic television. Sure. So Chris just went and shot on a big TV show um, a month ago, something like yeah, two months ago. Two months cool. ago, and the, the act that just wrapped on. Yeah, and one, of, and one of our friends, Carl Seaton, we had him on the show, and he's directing like everybody's show right now. And 
He talked about how, you know, he comes from features. Yeah. And he moved into TV and I was directing all these shows. He said that now having directed, you know, I don't know what, a dozen whatever shows in the last yeah. year, he's like, I don't know if I'd ever go back to just using like one or two cameras. I'd always have three or four cameras now. Sure. Yeah. You know, have you experienced that? And we, what's your thought on that? Yeah. Well, I will say this. I think most of our movies now we shoot usually with two cameras going okay. at a time. Um, how they're used depends on the production. Sometimes you're doing cross coverage. Sometimes you're doing A, B on, on the same line. Right. It kind of depends on how the DP and the director wants to work and, mm-hmm. and sometimes how the actors like to work. Mm-hmm. Um, or sometimes just the requirements of the space. Like right. in, in a band of film, a lot of time you're shooting in small spaces. You mm-hmm. kind of can't really cross shoot. Right. Um, I think when we were starting out, the norm was much more single cam. Um, there are definitely cases where we try to use as many cameras as possible. That's usually for, for stunt work. Uh, or, or, or you want just stuff, that, anything that's hard to repeat, the more cameras you have on it, generally the better. Uh, I will say it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous space because I think that as TV looks better and better and better, um, you, you run the risk of losing what makes movies have a bit of an edge on TV sometimes. Mm. The more you shoot them like a high-end high TV show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that, that, that depending on the type of movie it is, I, I could see a strong argument for going the opposite direction and, and, and shooting single camera and really making that lighting and, 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 and all that stuff <laughs> sing to a way you can't, really, you can't really for two or three cameras just because you can't. Lighting, it's the trend now is to do 360 lighting, and I think it's right. I think it's very very helpful for a lot of reasons. Right. But you kind of can't. There's certain movies you can't make that way, and you can't get a, a look. lot more expensive too. It's well, it's it's weird. It's it's like it it takes more time to light, mm-hmm. but then you can shoot really fast sure. uh, for 360 style. So so the the single cam approach where you're really lighting each shot. Um, each setup and each shot is lit specifically to make that look good. Mm-hmm. Does can still give you a production value edge over television that I think is appealing at the mm-hmm. at the higher higher end. I'd be nervous about trying to do that on a low budget, just because. So it, it's it's diminishing returns, right? Mm. I I I, I solely I wholeheartedly agree because I feel that on a low budget you got to move quickly yes. and you got to get the story. And I feel yeah. that you you're not necessarily looking for the iconic type of image on these low budget films that's right. usually not what the story is about and or, when, you're, or you're choosing your moments you, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah 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 whereas i mean you know it's the thing that always kind of i always get irked when people say that t- tv like you know like looks more cinematic mm-hmm. i'm like it doesn't it still doesn't because to me cinema is Tell me the story in pictures. Mm-hmm. If I can shut the sound off and follow your story, I know that that that's a good movie. And there's mm-hmm. a, and there's a, I remember he, people used to say all the time that these, these guys would come out of film school and, and they would send a movie to Spielberg would look at it and go, I didn't follow it with the, with the sound off, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. And it's like and it's and you can go watch a dozen television shows and turn the sound off. You don't know what the story is about because yeah. sure. they're editing for reasons that aren't necessarily they're not motivated by the story. Right. So I think the mo- the most cinematic TV show is The Nick because I do literally yeah. think that that feels like a movie like it. Like real choices are being made for where the camera yeah. is at all times. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, and because Soderbergh fucking knows what he's doing, yeah, and sure, he yeah. like goes, you know, I, this is how I'm going to do this. I mean, and he shot it like he's. I mean, the the, the there's like a little book you get. Um, 
this is like an iPad book for that. The yeah, pr- pr- production that. of yeah. that mo- the first season of that. Hmm. He kind of explains how he like he said I'm just gonna do this like a ten hour movie. Yeah, and we're gonna block it out this way and all this mm-hmm. kind of crazy. And he insisted to having all the scripts done so we could shoot it in a way that felt like how he would shoot a movie. Yeah. And you look at that show, and there's like, and there's there's no unmotivated cuts. He yeah. lets the camera linger for forever. You know, he'll let people walk from like, and, far. and their point of view choices, which yes. I think in television, it's it's there, there's a general approach where it's kind of like everyone's story uh, for a lot of television. Whereas I think in in film, a lot of the thought goes into okay, this scene is really about this character, and we're going to experience. It's, there's an approach to filmmaking, which is we're going to experience this scene through this character's point of view there's obviously like there's the Kubrick approach which is much more like standoffish and it's more like we're we're, we're not with any of these characters we're, we're observing this thing happening mm-hmm. to them uh, and I think the TV because the nature of the production demands and having to do this so much and and that most shows really are are, are ensemble shows to a certain degree um, that they're they end up in between those two extremes and I, and I think that the place that TV has done incredibly well is that is what used to be purely in cinema, which was the Altman-style mm-hmm. um, multi, multi-arc multi narrative mm-hmm. and, and multiple protagonists storytelling. And I think TV has done a very good job of, of kind of capturing that side of what film yeah. could yeah. only do. Um, but the very, very strict strict point of view stuff or or real distancing um, cinema is very hard, I think, still very hard to get right in television. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like, I, I, you know, there's a really, there's this guy named Tony Zhu. He used to do this, channel called uh, every 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 painting and he did this thing called um who wins the scene Mm -hmm. he does this little this scene he pulls out from silence of the lambs that first scene when when clarice and lector meet Mm -hmm. and he just kind of breaks down the way those shots are and it's Mm -hmm. like you know that's you know because he's he's because it's whose point of view this who's i mean demi was like a master of that yeah he really was he knew how to do that Yeah. yeah it's sad that yeah, he died too. Just, yeah, yeah. but you you think about that. You th- yeah. and that's the thing. That's the thing. I, I you can't do that in television because it's not your it's not your show as a director. You yeah. can't come in there and say, "Hey, guess what? This episode is going to be about this person's f- point of view only." Right. I'm going to come in and do this, and we're going to and we're, I'm going to show it. Th- I mean, there might be episodes written that way, but but that's something that, that but, but but you can't approach it that way just yeah. on every show mm-hmm. and i think that you know you look at movies and like you said with the, with the way they do the lighting i mean like obviously not with the as what i call it the it's, it's the unlit look the 360 mm-hmm. lighting yeah. It, yeah. it doesn't look like it's lit at all it's just mm-hmm. we're just filming stuff and it's fine for a lot of stuff but i always feel like you're missing the the opportunity to use the lighting to help you tell your story yeah it, that you do in a movie and well, i you know these guys i mean you know, certain guys shoot stuff to camera. I mean, there's a really great scene. Like, you know that scene in Fight Club when they're sitting in the bar when they when um, uh, when it like it's the first scene where 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 Brad Pitt and and, and Ed Norton are they meet. He meets his alter ego and they're in the mm-hmm. bar. Yeah. And it's the very scene where Fincher was like, "I'm gonna let these guys just go. I'm just gonna improvise this whole thing. I'm just gonna put two cam- I'm gonna put a camera on both of them and I'm let it play." You know, and he's like, because I don't know what they're yeah. going to say, and I want the right reaction, everything like that. So, I mean, that to me yeah. is how you, how you he want didn't want to miss it. You so want to miss it, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it would make <clears throat> you know, and that's where you get off. I mean, that's where you are best served using two cameras. I think yeah. in a movie, you know, so for sure, for sure. And I think I think that it it allows you to use performance choices that is hard to sometimes use in, in single camera, right? Because yeah. that's why so many comedies are shot multiple cameras. Is that 
any any quirk of timing and 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 improv is very hard to get to work with a single camera shoot mm-hmm. um, because you kind of you're kind of stuck more with the text in a way. Um, yeah, it is interesting because I do think that that um, that part of the, the reason why the 360 look is working well in features now and still allowing it to look a little bit than tel- different than television is because of how much the DI the the coloring of mm-hmm. the of the mm-hmm. of the footage has become the lighting of the footage. Um, I was talking with our, one of our colorists on one of our movies. They had just, the same lab had just done Roma, I think it was. Wow. Yeah. And they were talking about just the amount of time that was spent on the DI on Roma and like how they were able, able to light it and shoot it the way they were because they knew they could kind of basically go in and, and light, essentially light. The, the DP would come in, well, the director of the DP, but they would essentially light the um, these scenes that they knew they were lighting a little more general on, on the day, they could kind of get the detail and craft and shadow where they wanted it in the DI. Or Birdman's very similar, where they, right. they, they spent a huge amount of time on the DI and an extremely large amount of money on, on Birdman or, or The Revenant, similar, right? Mm-hmm. The Revenant, I think they spent as much... I think they spent more on the DI on The Revenant than we spent on most of the movies. We've made total, entire budget of right. the movie. Um, well, yeah, there was a there's an article I'll put in the show notes from that you know uh, uh, it's called Frame AI. You know, I mean, sure. Frame yeah. AI. so they did a breakdown of all the films that were up for best editing like last year, and they mentioned Roma was like a thousand hours on the DI. Yeah, and yeah. it's just like and you, and look at the other movies and they're like maybe couple hundred maybe, yeah. you know and it's like and, it, and you get and you and I mean but it's interesting you that because like he. Emmanuel Lebesky, who shot The Revenant and Birdman, yeah. he created his own LUT for uh, yeah. for Birdman, and he, and then he he gave it to Caron for um, yeah, Roma because he, 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 he was going to be prepped, he prepped it, yeah, yeah, and yeah. then they just kind of tweaked it for yeah. the black and white. Yeah. Yeah. But he was like, but you know, it's a special thing that Technicolor made for them, and they just all this work to give it that. To can give we, it can that we tell look. the kids what the DI is? People can okay, yeah. So the <clears> DI, uh, which means comes the digital d- intermediate. Digital intermediate. It's, yeah. it's when the, you use a program called Resolve or something like that, where you go in and you do all the kind of like uh, like the color saturation, the control of the curves, the lighting curves. You know, it's, it's all the stuff you can do in Photoshop. Mm-hmm. Basically, you yeah, yeah. change. Yeah, stuff. change. You can now, yeah, you yeah. now go in and you and you. I mean, you can. You basically can do all the stuff that when you did on a negative, you just have to deal with the printer lights. Right. You know, you just yeah. you just changing like the red, the green, and the blue. But uh, with this, you go in and you can like all these layers put in power windows. This means, yeah. hey, I just want this so like guy's- power windows. Yeah, you can do stuff like you can say, you know what, this this character is overlit in this scene. Let's bring them down two stops, and suddenly they don't look like they're overlit anymore. Yeah. Or you can say like in Birdman, I think a lot of what they were doing is they would shoot with with practical lights, and they'd be adjusting the the light levels of the practical lights on set to get the exposure they wanted. Mm-hmm. And then in the DI, they could then animate those to make it look like those lights weren't changing right so you can kind of right, you can kind right. of use it create there are ways to use it to fix problems and there are ways to use it in conjunction with cinematography to do things that were just never previously you were never able to do before yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean it's like the the revenant has this look of like it constantly looks like it's magic hour right. yeah you know and you're yeah. like no way they waiting they're waiting to shoot for it <laughs> they're, they're not doing that yeah. not, you know if you do it on a film it's like they'd wait for like I think I think on that one they did. That's why it's so over budget. I mean, it's possible. <laughs> but, uh, it's really, possible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, because there's all, you know what I have this really interesting book called um, 
Ready When You Are, Mr. Spielberg, Mr. Book. Coppola. Yeah, that's, that's one favorite, of my favorite favorite book. books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that guy Jerry Ziesmer, like yeah. he taught this class on a seminar called um, on writing to directing, it's, and I took that. It was great. But, it's, but there's this really great story in there about when they were shooting Apocalypse Now, mm. and the, and the way that they shot that scene where they get off the boat and they see the tiger, mm. and it's like they literally like. All day they waited, yeah. like 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 they 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 set the whole scene, all these dolly tracks and stuff like that, in the in the, in the jungle, and they waited till the right hour. Yeah, Storaro is just waiting, yeah, he's just waiting. For the light, and Wait. he won't, he doesn't know when the light's going to come. Yeah, so he's just waiting. Yeah, <laughs> and it's a real tiger out there. I it's, I don't know I how can't to. Remember I, I remember, but, they, yeah. but the lighting moment is what they're waiting. The lighting yeah. moment okay. because if you and it's this whole. It's I thought they're waiting for the tiger and the no, 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 they're no. waiting. <laughs> they're waiting for this specific <laughs> moment where the light will land a specific <laughs> way. Right. Yeah. 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 And then they roll the camera. They roll the camera. Shot, okay. and that's it. And yeah. it's all kind of designed where it's these. This is long tracking shot through the jungle, and it's you know it's a bunch of shots that are stitched together. And he, it's this interesting story where the the, the writer who wrote the book he was the first AD on that movie, and he was first AD on like Jerry Maguire and all this kind of stuff, and he was saying. I, just to pause, it really is an exceptional book, and and everyone should. It's not well known, and everyone should really try. No, it no, it's, it's well. You know what? Like, like I had it, and I was like, uh, um, I was like, I wonder if I should sell this. And it's like, it's it's it's, <laughs> it's hard to get. It's it's out of print, hmm. and it's like two hundred dollars on Amazon. Yeah. Because wow, it, yeah. It's, I was like, oh, I can't sell it now because I can, <laughs> I can never get it again if I get rid of it. So, um, but it's really it tells you so much about filmmaking and these guys yeah. who made these because he worked on some iconic. Iconic yeah. movies. Well, he was he was Cameron Crowe, Crowe's first AD mm-hmm. for yeah. a long time. He was a Coppola's first Coppola, AD for yeah. a while. I think he was the first AD on Close Encounters. Maybe? Yes, yes, he did. Oh, yeah, some so, yeah. It's, movie. It's, yeah, really yeah. amazing. I mean, and, he, and Sidney Lumet. Sidney Lumet. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he, he yeah. worked on a couple films. He was at the top of the top. Okay, yeah, top, yeah. yeah. He, and, there's, and there's no other AD who's yeah, you don't. Book. Yeah, you don't hear. Yeah, ADs are not out there writing books yeah. on their craft. So like, <laughs> it's, it's really worth reading. Yeah, and. But, it, but Storaro was that guy who was like, we're going to wait till this time. And it's funny because I think at the time, like, you know, like, Coppola's going insane the whole time. Right. And he's just like, and he's and he's in his, tr- he's not in his trailer, but he's in his boat, I guess. And he's and he's retyping scenes. And he's like, just mm-hmm. let me know when, the, like, when it's ready, when the light's ready to shoot. And he's like, all day. He's mm-hmm. like, right. And next thing, it's like maybe four o'clock, five o'clock. He's like, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's yeah. go. And they run and shoot it. And they get it, I think, in like two takes. And it's just like, that's it. Because he, he was waiting and he knew. Yeah. You know, I don't film. think I just don't think you can do that now though. You never be able to do that. Because, well now it's it's, it's, it's funny, I go back and I look at like the, the shooting schedule for the Exorcist was over hundred days. Wow. Now you're much. you're lucky to get twenty four days to shoot a horror movie. Like it's yeah. it's it's just not right. you don't have that luxury. I mean part of that is you can move faster now because digital is faster than film. There's, there's aspects of filmmaking that you can just mm-hmm. do at a quicker pace. Um, but yeah, that ability to like really spend time on the craft of making the movie. Is is not not there anymore? No, you can't justify no. those shooting schedules. No, no. I, I, what's his name? Had those? The I mean that was it, is it four hundred days on on Eyes Wide Shut? Wasn't That's that? Great. Oh yeah. I mean Kubrick's schedule yeah, got you, very very long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think The Revenant had a very long shooting schedule. Really? But there's there'll be a there's there's still movies where the director can figure out a way to get a really long schedule. But it's it's definitely not the norm anymore. No. Well, yeah. I think The Revenant was they had shot. They were shooting in Canada, and they shot through the winter in Canada, and yeah. they still needed to find where it was still winter in the world. Mm. So they had to then shoot the rest of it, I think, in Argentina, in you know, because they're like that's still <laughs> there's yeah. snow. And I was like, that's that's a long shoot. There's a there's a really funny 
you know, every year there, there's the awards movies and the DGA will do this podcast where it's like all of the different mm-hmm. nominees that, that year or, or potential nominees. I think that year um, it was, it was it's, it's um, Inaritu right? yeah, yeah, yeah. and Ridley Scott were both on the panel. And Inaritu starts going through the story about how, you know, they shot so long that the snows weren't there and they had to move somewhere else. And like, like talking about all these different challenges of the movie and all these problems. And, and Ridley Scott just goes, it sounds like you really didn't plan this well. <laughs> it's just like, fair, fair criticism. Yeah, well, you know, because, well, it's interesting because like he, a, a friend of mine um, was his first assistant editor on a bunch of movies in like mm-hmm. the late 90s and early 2000s and they he worked I remember he worked on Gladiator and on Gladiator uh, I said Alan Bates there's the actor the actor who the actor who trained him who trained Russell Crowe to oh, be okay. uh, he died oh, really? in the middle of the shoot oh yeah I do remember that and they, right, yeah. yeah and they you know and they were like okay <laughs> You know, like, and they still need to get shots, and they just kind of like, you know, they, and they, you know, these some of these, you know, these these production people, you give them so much credit, and they don't ever. I mean, filmmakers know when it's like, okay, a, a, a catastrophic. A, there's an event that happened yeah. that could that could derail the movie. Mm-hmm. How do we save it? We gotta we gotta reschedule so much stuff, and they figured out, oh, we can just like. I think the first time they like put someone's face on yeah. another actor because mm. they like took his face and just. Ma- and they mapped it on to somebody else to do the scenes he hadn't done. But that's where it's one of these things where it's like his team knew how do we, you know, like like not yeah. like shut the f- movie down and keep the plan going and just and and and, th- and throw the plan in the air and still fit the schedule because I yeah. don't think that movie if it went over budget just went over like a, I mean schedule like not a not bit. what you would think would happen yeah. if one yeah. of the main actors died halfway through. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah, because at that completion of I was worked at like we worked on. Imaginary of Dr. Yeah. Parnassus yeah. when they, you know, with the thing that Heath Ledger died on, mm-hmm. and they were like, they almost, they almost took the insurance claim. They right? were was, so yeah. close. They, yeah. the, the, the main reason why they didn't, and everyone fought to do this, is my boss had he he shut down um, Terry Gilliam's movie, uh, the the Quixote, the Quixote movie. Oh, yeah. He shut it when originally shot. He shut that down. Okay, uh, you know, and it's not, you know, they had this hurricane when they were shooting in Spain and, mm-hmm. and everything had washed away like third day in and so he was like I can't shut down another like <laughs> I just can't shut yeah. Terry's movie down again I owe him to figure this out yeah. and they he and Keith died over the holidays and they were uh, they were off anyway because they shot chunk of it in London and they were sh- doing all the stage work in Vancouver mm-hmm. so they were moving everything when he died and then they maybe spent I think maybe three weeks in limbo when they all just kind of, and they, I remember, I remember when Fred came in and was like, "I just got the phone with with Terry. This is what we're gonna do. We're gonna get Colin Farrell and Johnny Depp and Jude Law to come in and play the role, is because he like he plays this right. magician, this <clears throat> character, chameleon character, mm-hmm. and we would look at him like." Are you out of your mind? <laughs> how did right. like how is that even gonna work? Yeah. How is that even gonna work? Um, but they really wanted to shut it down. I mean, they, I mean, like yeah. like everyone was like saying, "Shut it down! Stop it! Stop it! Stop it!" Um, and this, you know, those schedules are are. I mean, there was people. I, I remember I was sitting there like counting the money we were just spending to hold everyone, <laughs> yeah. the crew, and it's just crazy. It's crazy. Um, you have some more. I questions. have some. Yeah, some questions. Yeah, let's do it. So, because um, I want people also to hear that some of the movies he's made. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I was gonna say. So actually, so there's a movie you did that I loved called The Wackness. Thank you. So how did that come about? 
Uh, so the the movie I spoke about earlier, All the Boys of Mandy Lane, was directed by Jonathan Levine, mm-hmm. and The Wackness was a script he was working on while he was at AFI, and then while we were making All the Boys of Mandy Lane, and, and um, we just always loved it, and and knew we wanted that to be the next movie that he did. Mm-hmm. I think after Mandy Lane, and you, you guys know this, like when you when you make a movie in one genre, that's all you get offered oh, yeah. from everyone in the mm-hmm. industry, and so he was just really excited that we. Want, we were like, yeah, let's go not make a horror movie. Let's go make this sort of coming-of-age dramedy in, in New York that's kind of autobiographical in some ways mm. and um, just believed in him as a filmmaker. Um, and so we just put it together off of Mandy Lane. It wasn't really that hard to put together because we had been financially successful with that first movie. Mm. Ben Kingsley came on very early in the process. I was going to ask you that. Wow. Like, yeah, he, he, you he just loved the script <laughs> and, and loved the, the... He wasn't getting... At the time, he wasn't getting approached... With characters like that, I think since then he 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 he's had quite a few that are like more. Is that before or after Sexy Beast? It was after Sexy Beast, but Sexy Beast was still intense. Ben Kingsley, mm-hmm. whereas the Wackness is like this kind of like stoner, like his right. char- the kind of the character he plays in Iron Man Three mm-hmm. is right. kind of like the Wackness. Like you would really. you wouldn't expect to see him in that type yeah. of role at that well, time. at that time. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, yeah. you know, Ben Kingsley, he's such a. Um, He's such a versatile actor. Yeah. It's sad that, yeah. you know, I mean, it's what happens in his business. Like you said, like like you do something and then you're stuck in that lane. Right. Yeah. I think for actors, you know, who always want to do something different, they they jump when they yeah. get something right. different. So. It's good to be stuck in that get paid a bunch of money to win Oscars lane. Right. Right, that's a good. Line. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna. Hey, <laughs> FA. I mean, but but some of those actors are still, still willing to do, do scale yeah, plus no, ten. Exactly, this is exactly, a good exactly. role. That's true. Yeah, that's I mean, true. look, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. not. I mean, I yeah. you know, I, I remember there was an interesting story where someone had, um, you know, because Bing, that's not his uh, Bing King, that's not his name. But, that's uh, real name. It, yeah, it's like his like Kingsley's not yeah. his last name. Like, there was an interesting story I read with him where he has an Indian name. right? He's yeah. Indian, yeah. Well, because he's half Indian, right. yeah. and that and that people were like, they were screaming that this British guy was going to play Gandhi. And yeah, he, it, it was a misconception. But yeah. he was like, hey, yeah. you know, like, um, but Gandhi. Nobody else in the world. Could no, have but the thing that. is, yeah. but no, but the thing is, but his his mother's father's from the same village that Gandhi's from. Right. Yeah. So he was like, shut up, because I'm more Indian than anybody right. who could play this role. And um, but you know, he plays, which, which is also of the time, like. Yeah, now sure. it's a different thing. It is. Like you well, can't cast I mean, someone who's a quarter Indian to play Gandhi. No, in, not now. In 2019. No, yeah. no, no, totally. Well, now. We, yeah. we interviewed Steve McQueen, yeah. Yeah. and we were talking about. I was asking him about how because there's a little bit of slack going on. You were just talking sure. about what's going on today about like British Americans playing, you know, black slaves. Yeah, and no, whatever. That's a blah, blah, blah. And he actually said a really good thing. He was like, "Well." You know, we're all Caribbean. You know, yeah. we all were, we were slaves too. Yeah. Like it was the same shit. I was like, yeah, that's right. I almost forgot about that. I mean, I always say there's this really, it's a, it's a, it's a little known, but it's a crazy Brando movie called Burn hmm. where it's about, um, uh, it takes place on a, on a sugar plantation. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a slave revolt movie. Set in like the late '60s in the sugar plantation in like Haiti or something like that. Oh, you kind of it's interesting because this, yeah, it's called Burn, or it's. I think the title is called like Kemata, is what it is. But then I think the English title is Burn, and it's. But I might not, you might be able to find it under Burn. That's why. Um, but it's interesting because you see this movie, and you're like, oh, here's a slave revolt movie that's not at some plantation in Georgia or something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. And, you, and you do forget that. You totally forget that. I, you know, that, that yeah. there's that, that that's where the, the slaves, they went to the Caribbean and, and then were sent exactly. to the States or sent to South America. Well, the, the crazy movie to watch that 
to think about that stuff. There's that uh, uh, Errol Flynn movie, Captain Blood, yes, which oh, is yeah, like yeah. a pirate movie where where he plays like an escaped slave, and it's like a whole movie about escaped slaves in the Caribbean, and they're all white. Yeah. You're like, what the hell is <laughs> exactly, this movie? Yeah. And they're not like playing not white. It's just like, what if we did like? I mean, it's such a, a brilliant concept. Let's make a movie about escaped <laughs> slaves that are pirates in the Caribbean. Like that is a great concept for the movie, right. and it's fucking Errol Flynn. Right. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. It is well, you know, it's yeah. because at, at at that time, people always forget this. It's there's there would uh, what are they uh, indentured servants, right? Mm-hmm. They would you know they would take these guys from England and stuff yeah. like that, and they'd make them slaves. But that, but those guys were able to buy their way out of their sure. slavery, you yeah. know, which is, wasn't the case for black people. Um, okay, so the wackness was one thing. Um, so blind spotting, yeah, ah, man, this movie that everyone talked about last year, it didn't get enough publicity, didn't get enough. I appreciate that, dude. You guys got shafted. Like, I mean, I, I mean, you know, there's so many friends of mine who are from the Bay Area. Mm. I'm from the Bay. You know, I thought it was going to be like Fruitvale Station at least. You know, at least love that movie. There was a as a guy on a po- I can't remember his podcast, but he's saying last year it was like <clears> his favorite movie of the year because it it it's one of those few movies that show showed. What the real oppression is on right. blacks and mm-hmm. particularly black men in America, mm-hmm. and so and this the guy who directed this that was that, his first feature, right? He he done some stuff, a lot of stuff before. He had done he had he had just shot a web series that hadn't come out yet, and he's mm-hmm. shot a couple short films, but mainly as a music video director. Right, right, right. very young. He's like in his twenties. He's got a great eye though. Yeah, 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 yeah. So how did that come about? We so Jess and I. This was this is a case of of a, of a long path. Like it mm-hmm. was eleven years for us to get that movie made. Wow. So we well to get. I'll, I'll tell you the story. So sure. so Jess and I, in probably two thousand. I'd have to go back and look at dates, but I think it's around two thousand eight. We really were getting into uh, the show Deaf Poetry Jam on, mm-hmm. on on HBO and kind of getting into that method of communication, the idea of spoken word poetry mm-hmm. as a performance art. And um, we started kind of spitballing with each other about, you know, what if you made a musical where instead of breaking into song, when they got to heightened emotion moments, it, it kind of went into verse. Right. And, you know, there was a bit of influence from from Slam, the Incredible mm-hmm. Solomons movie, sure. and and, um, and from Once, I think, had come out around that time, mm-hmm. the, the, the Irish musical. Love that. Where it's kind of like, yeah. it's a musical, but it's in a very real world setting and situation. So that, that was kind of the, the impetus. And then we started looking for poets, really, uh, to, to who we felt could do something like this. Um, and then Jess, I think, found Rafa, Rafael Casal, who, mm-hmm. who co-wrote the script and plays Miles in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, she found some of his videos on YouTube. And then we realized we had seen him on Deaf Poetry Jam because he was, at the time, the youngest poet who had been on the show. And he, mm-hmm. was a, 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 he was, I think he was 19 or 20 at the time, was like a youth poetry champion. Um, and we just reached out to him out of the blue uh, and I think he was working at an organization called Youth Speaks at the time up in mm-hmm. the Bay. And um, we flew up to to get, um, to I think we grabbed dinner with him and kind of chatted for two or three hours about, you know, what, about poetry and about about spoken word and about movies. And and, and Jess uh, asked him, was like, have you ever thought about, um, you know, writing and, and, and starring in a movie? Uh, we feel like that's something you could mm-hmm. really do, and he's like, I, I, not, I hadn't thought about that until right now, but I, I'd say yes. <laughs> I like the, I like the sounds of this, yeah. Um, and so we started chatting with him and kind of thinking about, well, what could this be? What, what, what would it be? And I, and we kind of went back and forth on a lot of different ideas. And he, he had written a poem, um, 
around that time called Monster that was about him coming to terms with so many people he grew up with dying from, mm. from violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and how... And how like I think it's that, on YouTube. Isn't it? I'm sure, I'm sure oh, it is on YouTube. Amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, yes. but it's and it's, a lot of it is about about also how it makes him feel like there's something wrong with him right. that this stuff's happening. Um, so we started developing it with Rafa, and we didn't really we knew we kind of wanted to deal with those themes, but not how the approach would be done. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, we had just made this documentary called Thunder Soul that was called it was which is I think one of our best movies and mm-hmm. is, is completely forgotten. Um, but it was a documentary about the first high school funk band, which is this all black band from Houston in the 1970s nice. that went on to win uh, like all the big national jazz competitions when it was only white plan, white bands. And that's a doc. It's a doc. And they were playing funk music. Let me so make it that was a like, for you. Oh, you, uh, we, we've been we've been we've been <laughs> we've been doing that, too. But it, it's um, <clears throat> it's it's it's. Phenomenal, and they, they right. won. They, the band ended up touring Japan and touring mm-hmm. uh, touring the U.S. And their their music still sampled today, like in in, in hip hop now, which is crazy mm-hmm. that this high school band's music is uh, is the backbone of like hip hop. And um, so we we had this talk, and we were taking it for a, a screening for the Congressional Black Caucus during the first Obama inauguration. And we wanted Rafa to come out to to perform at an event, this event we were doing. And he's mm-hmm. like, look, I can't come, but my best friend, this guy, David Diggs, yeah. he's going to be in D.C. anyway. You guys should meet. He can come, he can come uh, uh, perform at your event. And so, uh, you know, we met Diggs and, and hit it Not off. Yet. And uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he came uh, to perform. He did like 20 minutes of, of freestyle at this, this um, Congressional Black Caucus event and um, just blew us away. We're like, oh, my God, this is your best friend. He's like just as talented as you. This is right. crazy. And um, immediately kind of put them together. It's like, you guys should, this movie should be about, A, about your friendship, mm-hmm. and B, you guys should write it together and it should feel like it's coming from your voice. Uh, and, and Rafa and Debbie were like, yeah, we were hoping you would say that. So it was like, <laughs> it was our idea, but really it was their exactly. idea. Um, and so, um, and then we started developing ideas, pitching stuff back and forth. And around, around then the, the, the Oscar Grant shooting happened. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was especially in the Bay right away. It was a a the the only thing anyone could talk about, right. and so um, we we yeah, we're very close knit there. Yeah, you know what I mean yeah. because people a lot of people take public transportation. Yeah, so it's still, exactly with the bar. Yeah. yeah, and so it was it was right away. Th- okay, this is this is the the impetus. What if what if one guy sees this and the other guy doesn't, mm-hmm. and what does that? How does that affect their friendship? And that became the kind of the the, the starting incident. Right. Um, and at the at that time, Rafa and David, I don't, I don't think I think they had never read a script before. They were reading scripts. We were sending them to be like, hey, this is what a screenplay mm-hmm. looks like. So they were kind of like learning what screenwriting was, and they would just send us scenes basically, and it would just really be dialogue. So the scene in the film where it's their fight in the sort of parking lot area where they're talking about the N word and they're, and they're talking about um, race in that way was one of the first scenes they wrote. That was 10, like eight, probably eight years before the movie. It stayed pretty much intact. Stayed very, very close. That's, that's the only thing really that's very, that's very, very close. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and then the, in the inciting incident is, is, is similar. Um, And then as we were developing it, there ended up being like these sort of blocks along the way. One is that, it was originally very close to the to the Oscar Grant incident. It was it was, um, and then we heard about Fruitvale Station, Fruitvale right. happening. Saw that saw that movie getting made, and we're like, oh no, we can't do that. It's just mm-hmm. been done. We have to like rethink what our movie is, and um, and kept kind of re reconceiving it, reworking it, going through different drafts of the script, um, and um, around the time that 
we were actually about to go, this is maybe five years ago, we were like, okay, let's, let's, this is now our priority. Let's go make this movie. It was always like a passion project for us. Sure. And um, we were, we were going to go out to make it. And Diggs says, you know, I've got this experimental theater thing. <laughs> this little uh, thing. Yeah, he's like, I got this experimental <laughs> theater thing. It's going to be at the public in New York. I, I'll, definitely, <laughs> I'll definitely be available in the summer. But like, I can't. I can't like totally commit until right. we see what happens with this thing. And so Jess and I fly out to New York for like the first week at the, go to see support our friend and go see mm-hmm. his play. What and like this is Hamilton. <laughs> and and like after no the thing, after yeah. the first act, I turn to Jess and I'm like, this is the best musical I've ever seen. Right. David's not gonna be available potentially forever. Right. Like what, he might win a, yeah. he might win a Tony. <laughs> no, it, was, it was like one of those it was one of there's a few moments where like you experience a work of art and you right. just know right away. Right. This is going to take over the conversation, mm-hmm. and that—that's what seeing Hamilton was for. Damn, for you us. got to see it in the early, right away, the right original as, yeah, cast. Yeah, yeah. And so Damn. we had dinner with Diggs after, and I'm like, Diggs, you're there's no way you're available. Right. Some are potentially not available ever. <laughs> like, we are so proud. Like, it's exciting. Right. I'm, I love it, and and um, and uh, it looked like it wasn't going to get made, hmm. and then. Um, Diggs kept going with Hamilton, and Rafa was writing other things and working on other things. And I th- and I feel like um, when when Moonlight won the Oscar, mm-hmm. um, oh, the the year before that, I, I tweeted something along the lines of the project that I most regret not getting made is is this thing. I talked about it kind of like very generally. Okay. And then when when Moonlight won the Oscar, Rafa texted me and he's like. Did you mean that tweet you said? Like, this is the one that you feel like? And I was like, yeah, I absolutely mean it. This is like our passion project. We love you guys. Like, this is something we've always wanted to make. And he, and he says, well, I think that Diggs has a window, like a one-month window this summer. <laughs> wow. can we, can we, this is like in February. He's like, I think he has a one-month window in the summer. Can we like revisit this and try to get it made? And I was like, absolutely, yes. And we got on a plane to New York, I think the next day, hmm. and sat down with Rafa and with, and with David, and we're talking about the script. And what had happened is that the the earlier drafts of the script. I mean, this is sad, but this is reality. The mm-hmm. earlier drafts of the script were were much more about the community coming together and riots starting, and and this kind of res- like this galvanizing event right. of the shooting becoming something that that became Black like, Lives Matter. Yes, kind of. Kind of bu- and <clears throat> and over the course of us having developed this, Black Lives Matter started mm-hmm. right, and so these things were actually out there, and then we got to the point where if a shooting wasn't caught on camera, it didn't get a protest, you know, it just became normal. And so then that whole view of the film shifted and became much more, what if this is the only guy that sees it and he's the only one that has that, that, that trauma. Um, And the community to the most of the community, it's just another shooting. And, and that, that tragedy of it um, became more what it, what it was about. And I think, yeah. And I, and I think that, that at the same time, um, David and Rafa both had had people close to them that had gone through the prison system mm-hmm. and been through that that weird path of coming back. And um, that the initial draft of the script that wasn't what David's character was. Um, and and we knew okay, we also want to talk about what that is and what what the what the what the um, the revolving door of of, of prison is in, mm-hmm. in some ways. Um, and so we um, we we did a very very heavy rewrite, really page one rewrite. Um, Rafa came out to LA oh, at the same time we were in New York Rafa introduced us to Carlos who we had known because he directed a lot of David's band's music videos mm-hmm. he was kind of on our radar and, and um, Carlos agreed to come on as a director and so Carlos, Rafa, me and Jess kind of hold ourselves up in, um, in LA while David was finishing up Hamilton and 
Rafa and David would chat all night, and then they'd come in, and we'd all like put index cards up on the wall and rebreak mm-hmm. the whole story and kind of like pitch scenes and talk through stuff. And it was very, very, probably the most collaborative environment. So you guys had a writer's room in there. That's basically. Nice. Yeah, really, basically. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, I, I haven't been in a, in a TV writer's room. It yeah. was a writer's room in the sense it's that similar. we, were, still we similar. were all breaking story, but, but Rafa and we were writing. Understood. Yeah. Well, sometimes the showrunners just writing. Yeah, stuff, yeah, so. I guess. So yeah, it's a very similar. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, but we knew we had this very, very short window of time to get the script to the point we felt like it was ready to make right. because we had to, at this point, David had become a big name. So mm-hmm. we actually had to convince his team now that he should spend his time making this thing that he spent 10 years trying exactly. to get made. Uh, <laughs> so we had to get the script to the point. And it was this real moment of like <laughs> us sending it out to David's team and being like, well, if they don't like this, I don't think we can get this together because the time window is so short, right. it's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And luckily his team read it and, and fell in love with it right away. And, and, um, and it was really off to the races. And we, we, so we had that texting conversation in February, that rewriting was basically March. We were soft prep April, wow. May, and shooting in June. We were done shooting by July fourth. Wow! And then at and then the film was done by Sunday that's the following fast. year. So it was. It, but I feel like that's. I mean, the joke about Hollywood is always that it's hurry up and wait, right? It, yeah. it is that way. So nine years or ten years of of intermittent development mm-hmm. and and trying to push this boulder up the hill, and then an extremely narrow window of time where it's like, okay, no, this thing's real. Now we have to like spend twenty four seven making sure it happens. Mm-hmm. And it was a very. It was a very. In some ways, it was the best shoot we've had. It felt so creatively open. Everyone's ideas were, were being listened to. It was really phenomenal, mm-hmm. but it was very challenging because it was a tiny budget, and um, we had 20, 22 shooting days, mm-hmm. and we had more locations than shooting days, and we didn't yeah, have enough time the, to the, 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 There's so Oakland much of the, there's so much of the town. The in, yeah, exactly. For sure. And we, mm-hmm. so we were shooting full 12, 14-hour days, and then me, Jess, the Carlos, and the DP, and, and Gaffer would go out at night because we didn't have enough. We couldn't get all our locations in time oh to, before we started shooting. So we were we were so doing we were scouting, we were scouting and wrapping locations while we were shooting the movie. Wow. And there were so many things where we only could make that movie because we had such an extreme level of trust with Rafa and David from mm. from the years of 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 believing in each other when none of us had anything, right. and and kind of like building through that process. And um, and that we brought along, and Carlos, uh, to his credit, was very open to us bringing along department heads that we had worked with before. So there was a shorthand yeah, of helps. just just understanding the process of making the movie. Mm-hmm. So like our our DP on that movie was the same DP we used on on the guest and on Blair Witch, and then. Our production designer was our production designer on most of our movies, including that very, very first movie we made, oh, really? where it was yeah. his thesis project. Mm-hmm. He was our production designer, um, and and we were. It we becomes were a family. It, so it's it does. Like, it it really does become a family. But it, that trust level, right. we always exactly. talk about that. And the, and the, and there's a sense that everyone is coming this from the point of view of being passionate about this, telling this story, mm-hmm. and everyone is coming from this, from the point of view of wanting to work together in a way that will do, tell the best version of that right. story. And I think we were able to get it kind of through that because of that. Um, and it was, you know, it's challenging because it's, it's a lot of locations. It's a big cast. Not a lot of, not a lot of budget to work with. Right. Oakland is, I love Oakland. It is not the easiest place no. to shoot a movie. And it can be dangerous. It, it can be places. dangerous. And like, for sure, <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna tell you. I will say like the smartest decision we made, because we got a lot of advice to get like these big like security mm-hmm. outside firms and the smartest advice we got and the thing we did was was 
get a security person who's from Oakland that right. knows the neighborhood, that who knows that the homies, who'd be like, "Oh, that's them." Exactly. Don't fuck exactly. With and we had right. an incredible security team right. that that took care of us the whole way through it. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean like all our trucks were robbed night one, right. but like. That's shooting a mo- movie in Oakland. And we, yeah. we knew that was potentially going to happen. And that so did we, happen? It did happen, yeah. Oh, yeah. I thought you yeah. were saying it could happen. No, no, no. It happened. It did happen. Night one. And, and the reason, it's, it's, it's a long story. Right. The reason why it happened is that the location where we were parking our trucks, mm-hmm. where the requirement was that we had to use their security people. Mm-hmm. And their security people didn't care. So someone broke in. Wow. After that day, um, we then just had our own security people handle it. And there were no problems. So I think I think that there's listen anywhere you shoot there's problems I I've had I've had we had more problems shooting in Romania than we had shooting in, in Oakland so it's not like yeah and I, that's yeah. making that's making that's like production is all about yeah solving these problems on the day that you don't you can't anticipate you can't you can't and but the thing is like for example with the trucks we still made sure we parked them so it's hard to get the gates up because it's parked up against There's the wall. Like, there are things you can do yeah, yeah, to, minimize, to minimize the, to the, minimize the, the, the problems. <laughs> and you, that's all you can really do at the end of the day is do everything you can to minimize the problems. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay, okay. Um, another question. Yeah. If you, if, you, if you feel like talking about this, what are your thoughts on the WGA and, <laughs> and, and ATA <laughs> conflict? I mean, I would say that... I mean, I'm, I'm, I think it's, I, I hope obviously this one, I'm a very pro writer person. I, I came, I wanted to get in film through thinking about writing and, and screenplays. I, I, one of the first things I did when I, before I actually even come out to grad school in LA is a script that a friend of mine and I wrote together, um, was optioned by a director to be a movie. So before I was ever a producer, I was writing. Um, I sort of stopped writing once I became a producer. Um, but my writing partner back then is now a TV writer. So I, I, I feel like my inherent uh, loyalty is always going to be with with writers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that definitely colors how I view the WGA and ATA sure. uh, action or inaction or whatever you want to call it. Um, and I also, I deal with agents every day, all the time. I deal with the packaging departments. I've seen things that frustrate me and I've seen them be helpful on stuff. Um, that's the interesting that's the interesting thing that I keep getting a lot of questions on. People don't realize that film actually has packaging too. People keep thinking it's all TV. I'm like, no, there's independent film is its own weird space. So independent film Mm -hmm. traditionally is not it is not a money earning source for agencies. So the way they, but they, they understand that all of their future clients come from that mm-hmm. and they, and, and, you know, so many of the movies I've made, the directors didn't have agents and then they ended up signing with the agency that was the agency selling the movie. Right. right? So they understand that that's a path to find talent. Um, and they understand that there'll be occasional films that break out and can make a lot of money, like the mm-hmm. big frat Greek weddings or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, Are so you they, guys writers guild, DGA, all that? We are, we, it's a film depends by film on the movie. Yeah, it depends on, okay. so I would say mo- most of our films are writers, it, it just depends on the movie, okay. to be honest. Um, the, uh, it really depends on the writer, right? So if a writer is in the Writers Guild, we figure out how to do it so that it's a Writers Guild deal. A lot of time we're working with writers where it's the first thing they've ever done, mm-hmm. And it's a budget of a movie that's. I mean, there's, I, we can have a whole separate conversation about. No, no, no. I, I just we can have a whole separate conversation about micro budget filmmaking within the Writers Guild okay. because it's very, very hard to make 
a writer, a very low budget movie as a writer's guild movie. Yes. Trust me, we've way, been arguing with them for yeah, years. Yeah, I, I have, I have real beef <laughs> with it because it, it, the way it's structured, just to explain for sure. listening, the way it's structured with the writer's guild, and it's not this way with any of the other unions, mm-hmm. is that they, they, you can pay anything that makes sense, right, in the budget, but there's a deferment um, from first money made right. at all, not first profit, just any first revenue comes in, there's a deferment up to the low budget scale. Yeah. Right. Goes, goes to the writer first goes before you pay first. anybody else. So what happens is if you make a $300,000 movie mm-hmm. with, or even worse, let's say you're making a $100,000 movie with a writer uh, who's in the WGA and you have to do it as a WGA movie. Mm-hmm. And um, that first, something like 40 grand or something like mm-hmm. that, that that movie generates in any revenue has to go directly to the writer. So and essentially what you're making is a $140,000 movie of which $40,000 of the budget is going to the writer. Right. And that's outside the realm of, of fairness to everyone else that works on the movie. Um, and, it's, and it doesn't even really help the writer that much because, A, it's hard to, it's hard to get a deal structured so you can even make that movie. Right. So the movie just doesn't happen mm-hmm. the majority of the time. But when it does happen... We both had them fall yeah, apart you, because, yeah, trust it's, me. It's, so, it's yeah. impossible. So <clears> I, I, once the ATA and the WJ thing is, is done, I was mm-hmm. going to talk with some of the, the writers, guild people I know because I feel like a solution needs to become a, someone needs to come to would a solution. Would you be willing to be on a panel if I put something together? I, I'm happy to talk okay. about it. I'd I'll have to do more research to make sure right. I'm actually up to date right. on what all the current stuff is. Okay. Because um, I run the education committee with Jeff Melvoin, so it's, yeah, I'm I, always putting together panels. I, I think that I, I get where they're coming from, and I, and I understand that there's a lot of producers out there trying to take advantage of writers. Mm-hmm. I completely understand that. But I also think that there's a lot of producers out there trying to make low-budget movies, true low-budget, micro-budget movies, that it's literally impossible for them to work with Writers Guild writers mm-hmm. on them. And to me, that's fundamentally against the point of the Writers Guild. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can't... You can't um, shut down an entire class of writing just because the the budget of the actual movie itself can't support hiring uh, a writer. Yeah, that's something that I remember the time when I was when I was running for the board. I really was saying you've got to have like um, a third breakpoint on the pricing because yeah. you you know it's basically it's it's. It's like four million dollars, I think, is the break point. Maybe it's two million, and if it's if it's, I'd two, have to check. I can't remember what it is, but it's like this: if it, it, if the movie is four million dollars and under, you get X amount. Right. Doesn't matter if it, four million. It, it, like it, it could well, be they have that ultra yeah. low budget hundred yes. five hundred thousand dollar one but now. They, but, I, but you know, I don't think it's low enough. It's not, I don't think it's low yeah, enough I don't because I think what you know what, because one of the things I was telling everyone is I was like, look, you know what, this disproportionately affects the writers of color. Because yes. those people, that's where the opportunity yeah, is a bit. yeah, the, because yeah. because those writers can't get in, and those, or if they are in and they can't get other work because yeah. of the way the industry is with this systematic stuff, here's a shot for them to make a movie that could be cool that they, that they could reasonably raise the money for. Yeah. That now they can't do as like a guild film or something. And like look that. and look at where so many careers come from these days in features mm-hmm. is writers and directors working on very low budget movies mm-hmm. and then that leading to bigger work. Yeah. And if you, if that door is shut to you, then you, you don't get to take that path. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but overall thoughts on the ATA and the WGA. Yeah. We, that, we can go on. This yeah, all yeah. Day, but go over, ahead, you're overall fine. thoughts on it are that, that, um, uh, I think the writers guild are, are in the right. Okay. 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 So, he's, um, he's going to get beat up if he didn't say it. That's all. <laughs> well, I will. I will. I will get I'm beat up because I said <laughs> it. Too. So yeah. Uh, what is, what is, what is, what is, what is, um, okay. What is, Why are you being indecisive? No, because I want to see what I want to ask. Okay. So here's a, here's, here's an interesting question I want to ask. Sure. You as two things about. Okay. Two things. 
um, the star system is basically done now, right? Um, it's it's this it's gone the same way as everything else, where the it's only the tops and the bottoms, right? Right. So it's the middle of the star system is is gone. So how does that affect you? In terms of you know, there's always. I remember when I was working at the police bond, there was always this, they were you know just pre sales, these international mm-hmm. pre sales. Mm-hmm. You know, and since there's 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 so few stars, those big stars that will open the movie. How does that affect you know the choices you make and the type of films that you that you want to produce in terms of like who you want to go after? Yeah, I mean, I would separate out. It's two different conversations, right? So one is a conversation about movie stars, and the other is a conversation about the the foreign sales and pre sales model, right? So I would say the foreign sales and pre sales model is almost gone now. Like mm. I think I really think people have been saying that for a while, and I think in the last year it feels like it's really happened. Um, and I think it's it's there still for movies that are uh, tiny, where it's like you're you're you can make a movie for a couple hundred grand and there's some sort of base level value. Sure. Uh, and I think it's there for you're making an action movie with uh, Liam Neeson mm-hmm. and it's, it's everyone kind of <clears throat> knows there's a certain level of money in theatrical performance that'll happen based on a certain amount of advertising budgets and, and people can still do that independently. Uh, I think that the kind of broader sense of independent cinema being financed through pre-sales is almost all gone. Um, part of that is related to the star system. It's more related to pay TV deals. And mm. this is getting like really into the nitty-gritty sure, sure. of the business. Um, so many of the foreign uh, rights deals are really based, for, for a theatrical distributor, are really based on the value they're going to get from their local pay TV buyer. Right. And the local pay TV buyers now are under so much competition from Netflix and from other platforms or just other ways of viewing content that they can't justify spending what they used to spend to, to license and you know a $5 million independent film in that territory. So what you end up happening is that and again, this is this is a macroeconomic situation mm-hmm. across a huge number of industries, which is as technology is, is, has improved things for people, it has resulted in the middle going away, mm-hmm. um, and it really helps the the what they call the long tail, like the the the, the vast. Everything gets helped in a in a macro sense, right? So if you have if you own the rights to a thousand movies, you maybe are getting a little bit more extra license value from the thousand movies in the long tail. Right. Uh, it's it's helpful for the movies that are breakout hits because they they um, they get access such huge access, right? So so you can kind of get real huge value for a movie that even you look at the box <clears throat> office right now. You look at what an Avengers movie or something yeah. like that does. Like the 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 value of being a hit is so massively high. Right. Um, the stuff that's really gone away is this is this middle ground, um, or it's gone away in in features. It sort of has maybe shifted towards television or mm-hmm. other media and things like that. Um, so for me, when I'm looking at a film now that is designed to be independent in a truly independent way, uh, I almost I almost can't think of the international marketplace as individual territory territory business at all. I kind of have to think about the international marketplace more as part of a probably part of a worldwide sale to a company that gets value globally on a movie. Mm-hmm. So it's either that's to a Netflix where they're you know going through their platform everywhere or it's to um Focus or something like that, where they're releasing via Focus in the U.S., but then Universal International is handling international territories either through their pay TV output deals or or through, through theatrical. If the movie warrants like a big theatrical release, um, or it's uh, uh, you know uh, uh, Warner Brothers or something, where it's just it's just a movie that Warner Brothers will release wherever and go through all their different deals. Right. Um, so that the the sort of dominant model of independent film finance that 
existed from probably the late 80s to a few, now, basically, of the foreign pre-sales model seems like it's dwindling to gone. Um, so a lot more of what I'm looking at now um, would be these sort of hybrid independent productions where it's being financed and put together and developed and packaged independently, but you're working with your eventual distributor before you've made the movie. So it's it's putting together a movie um, for uh, Lionsgate, let's say, right, where we're, we're, we're approaching them or we're approaching a bunch of different companies and saying, here's the movie, we've developed it, here's the director, here are the writers, we're going to go shoot it in the fall, here's the budget, here's the schedule, here's, you know, it, this train is leaving the station, mm-hmm. do you want to, you know, get on this train with us? Um, that's kind of where I see the commercial side of independent filmmaking going. Um, there's the artistic side of independent filmmaking where I think that a lot of it is going to be based, have to be even more based on what you would call soft money, which is tax incentives, uh, Grants. Um, a lot of European countries have a very, very, a lot of free money towards productions. Like in Australia, if you're an Australian writer and director, you get a lot of support from the Australian mm-hmm. government to, to make movies. I think that the, the art side of independent film is going to have to become even more reliant on the, the, those sources of, of financing and, and patrons and, and, and uh, crowdfunding and these types of things. Um, and what I talk about, I mean, it's, it's kind of depressing that that is the nature of independent mm-hmm. film, but I, I, I try to look at it more from the, the viewpoint of um, making art in general uh, over the long history of mankind um, has not been a financially successful path for the majority of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe we just had a brief window of time where it was nice for a period, and now we're just back to what it normally would be, mm-hmm. which is that it's really hard to commercialize art. Uh, in, 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 in for art's own sake. Um, and I think that, that film is always a tricky thing to talk about because it, it, it straddles that divide of art and inter- entertainment. Uh, and I think that um, you still have to figure out if you're trying to do the art side, like how do you get that made? Mm-hmm. And I think those paths are, are, are becoming harder to, to navigate. Okay. And then my last question is, what's your criteria for a script? Oh, that's a good one. Um, like if I'm reading it as a submission or something we're developing or what, what are your... As both. a submission, as a, we're both. Okay. Well, I would say most of the projects that we've made are projects that have come through us from the ground up. So it's usually a writer that we've read something that we liked and then met and then talked about other ideas of things that we all like and then kind of found a spot where it's, oh, this is interesting. Let's explore this spot. Mm. So you um, usually develop whatever it is you guys like. We generally you. do. And I think there's there's a lot of good and bad reasons for that. I think the, the good reasons are that I think that um, it allows the process of figuring out the core idea to be informed by our experience of what the market looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's hard sometimes for writers to get a direct sense of that. And so sometimes it, the, the commercial side of it is, is developed from uh, an end user point rather than a middleman point, if right. that makes sense. So like a lot of independent film, the customer, we're generally really selling. Like I'm talking in very businessy terms, which is not really how I think about film. But the, our customer for what we make is usually the distributor. Mm-hmm. And then the distributor then releases the movie. Right. So it's somewhat less important to an independent producer how the movie will do at the end of the day when you when you're at the start of the process like you, that that's that's one of the checkboxes the other checkbox is could i actually convince a distributor that this is a movie that they should be releasing right. and i think that that um 
there it's it, there's a lot of movies that would check the this there's a market for this in the audience for this that doesn't check the middle ground box um especially if you're approaching things outside the studio system mm-hmm. right so there, there's certain types of movies that are just very hard to make independently mm-hmm. and some of those movies like not in the way you would think about it are the most commercial ones um just because the studios don't actually want to buy those movies from the independent marketplace. They want to make them themselves. Mm. So I'm just not necessarily the right producer for certain types of material because of that. Um, I feel like I've sidetracked on what the question is. No, oh, no, well, you're still there. Material, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I, for me, a lot of well, what, what I... What about the, yeah. the company itself? Like, do you guys have a mandate? Like, the type our of our mandate, like, if you look at our movies, it's super confusing. We're right. all over the place. Yeah, totally. We've done <laughs> animation, documentary, mm-hmm. horror, comedy, drama... Uh, tiny movies, somewhat bigger mm-hmm. movies. I mean, it's really all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that the, the things that are important to us right now are fundamentally, it's very, very unlikely that we're going to make a movie where the leads are all just white people. It's just not something that, that. that we're interested in. I, I think it. that part of that came out of <clears throat> spending a long period of time being told by foreign sales companies that you have to cast white people. Mm-hmm. And I think at a certain point, lust looking at each other and be like, this is crazy. We tried to cast Michael B. Jordan in this movie. Right. And instead, we were told we had to cast this guy that no one had ever heard of. Mm-hmm. Why is that a financial decision that made sense for anyone? It's not driven by any reason that we can understand. Mm-hmm. And so we, we ha- have shifted our thinking on that a lot. Um, I, I would say we've shifted our actions to what our thinking always was. Right. Um, and, I, and I think that's, for me, just very important. Um, similarly, I think that the types of stories that we want to tell um, are stories that we think reflect people around us. Um, and I, th- I don't think that necessarily means, like, I love science fiction. I love fantasy. I love, love horror. I love these things. But the thematic content, I want them to be about the things that I talk about with my friends, that I hear people talk about, and, and that are relevant to the world we live in now. I love um, those are things that are important to me. Um, I think that when reading a script, in general, um, th- a, friend, a friend of mine was trying to describe our movies, and he was like, they're movies, you know, they're independent movies, but but things actually happen in them and they, and they kind of like move along at a pretty good pace. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's pretty accurate. Like we, we, we don't like, like most of our movies are 90 minutes long and like they're, that. and they're kind of like, move. yeah. And I, and I, I try to like, I respect, I try to respect the audience. I'm very, like, I think our approach is very audience focused in the sense that, that it really matters to us how the movie plays. Right. And I think that the writers and directors that we work the best with are, uh, are people that come from it from that perspective? I, I think that there are brilliant filmmakers who approach <laughs> things much more, more from the perspective of I have this vision inside me and I just want to express that vision. We're much more about wanting to work with filmmakers that are about how that's received on the other end. And I think that that's um, just something for me is is, is important. Like I've I've sat through screenings where. I, I felt the audience wanting to connect to the movie and not being able to, mm. and I and I and I, it's just not something that I like. Like I, yeah. I, I like to make movies that people like watching. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's, it, you yeah. know, it's funny because there's always this kind of a weird um, knock about independent sla- the the art side of the independent mm-hmm. film is that they're usually these films that might be considered. You know, like the abstract painting right. is what people tend to make, and I always. The, the the independent cinema that I've always loved is the ones that really touch you yeah. and mean something. I mean, we talked about Sexy Beast mm-hmm. earlier. I mean, that's such a great yeah. movie. I mean, and it's like studios would never make that. It's no. too, what it, it's just whatever, it's just not mm-hmm. a studio type film. It, it doesn't, it, 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 
like it can't play to a, to a huge audience. Yeah. But the audience that that movie will connect with will love it. Exactly. You know, yeah. and I think that, I mean, and is you know, like it's like all those Pedro um, Amodovar films mm-hmm. are not for everyone, but the one, people mm-hmm. who watch them love them, and he's made an amazing mm-hmm. career, and I and yeah. I, I love seeing that type of film, and even though, and I realized, as you say, it's interesting, like 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 he's making a movie that he wants the audience to like. Yeah. He knows he wants the audience to like this movie, and exactly. that's and he's making choices with who he's cast, how he's mm-hmm. shooting it, what he's, and that's I think where he's just telling it, but he's not telling us a traditional story that may be be easy, you know, to 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 market. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think I remember, I think of, of of film as any storytelling or art, and I think that there's there's sort of three fundamental approaches. Like one is is making um, art that that. Pushes pe- that that confronts people and pushes people away. Mm-hmm. One is making art that keeps people at a distance, and one I think is art that invites people in. And I think I'm much more drawn to doing things that invites people in. Mm-hmm. I there's a lot of filmmakers I really respect that do those other two things. It's just not what I'm interested in right. in producing and, and putting my time into. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I have one quick question for you before we wrap up. Um, so, in regard to um, blind spotting, yeah, did you would it when 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 David and Rafael, Rafael yeah Rafael, Rafael yeah. when they were rapping doing their spoken word yeah were they live or were they taped live um, so the process on that what we felt very strongly that did you could modern, feel them that's what yeah, I was saying we felt very I mean? strongly that that modern day musical content in movies. Mm-hmm works best when you feel the live performance um, and you and the, and the performance feels like it's in the moment. Right. And I think that there are reasons, there are technical reasons why you can't always do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we structured from the beginning that that was the, the approach. And that was actually one of the biggest fights we had with our editor early in the process is that he... We'd, we we did pre-record a lot of the stuff so that we would have it so they could rehearse it and so they could have it and so and they would have an earwig where it was kind of playing oh so they can get the so timing, the timing right yeah because that's a huge challenge right. so you have to get the timing right but still be able to record the diegetic performance so um, that was a big challenge and and one of the key scenes in the film where it's the the um, the courtroom mm-hmm. uh, dream sort of rap. Uh, version mm-hmm. um the first cut we saw had the re- pre-recorded track and it just i felt like it just wasn't landing mm. emotionally um and so we put a lot of work into getting it to the point where it does land. it's a lot it's it is technically a lot more challenging during prep and production and post mm. to get that to work um but i think the reward i think the rewards are are to people that are really tuned into it very clear and i think even to people that aren't tuning into it subconsciously it's the same reason why you don't try to ADR every scene of a movie. You right. try to use the production dialogue as much as possible. Mm-hmm. There's something in performance and a warmth of 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 that moment that mm-hmm. is lost when you're using a pre-record or a post-record. Okay. Yeah, because I, I there's a movie that people haven't seen, um, Altman's Kansas City. Sure. And there's a uh, and he recorded all the music live in that. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it's this interesting story about if you get the the CD, there's like a the you know, there's like 30 or 40 mics set up like in this club because mm-hmm. he wanted to re- he didn't want to do any even the, the playback he didn't want to do any playback he was like these guys are going to perform live and he wanted to get the crowd sound he wanted the knowledge. crowd yeah. during the take <clears throat> of the people are still acting and right. he was like because you know I can isolate the sound yeah. by miking everybody um, so and it's, I mean the, the movie's like a, it's not his best work but 
the the music scenes yeah. are some of the best music scenes you've I feel ever like seen. Nashville is similar too, though, right? Because his Nashville, I think there may be some pre-records, but most of yeah, that is yeah, is, yeah, is live. But it is. But yeah. the 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 jet, but the jazz band he has in that, mm-hmm. and they're playing with the oh, yes. is like a different That's kind different. of. Yeah, it's yeah. different. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think he was saying because the same guy who did who was a production recordist on Nashville did Kansas City. Yeah. He was saying that. That, that, that Robert, well, his, his production sound mixer is probably the best that ever existed. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he was saying, you yeah. know, he wanted to challenge him with this movie, but yeah. we're going to record everything live with the with the music with the jazz band. And, and he, that was, I think, for us, it was we we knew we could take on the challenge on the low budget because really predominantly it was one person. It would right. be one person in the scene. Right. So like that dream scene, and this is part of the trust level that builds. Like the original written version of that dream sequence had seven different characters that were rapping and oh, and, a, and it was much more heightened in terms of the um, went all Hamilton the on them all of a sudden. It was it was it really and, and it was it was exceptional. It was really amazing on the page, but we just knew there was no way you could we would be able to pull this off on on the resources we had. Right. Um and so a lot again a lot of that is where we come in on on the script late in the process is hopefully we are at the trust level where if we're saying to to the writer and the director we don't think you can achieve this with the resources. You either need to be able to convince us why you can, mm-hmm. or we need to rethink how this, this moment happens. And I think that, that the answer is almost always, I mean, I'm tooting my own horn here, the answer is almost always that there is not a way to do it and sure. you have to rethink it. Sure. Um, but I find that the rethought, if you're, doing, if you're, if you're in the zone, and I, I, we always try to kind of stay in that zone of, of always trying to make stuff better even when you're making production revisions, um, then I think it can still be great. Right. The, the, the danger is when it feels like a production revision where you're, you're going into it saying like, well, it's the lesser version, but it's the only one we can achieve. Yeah, the challenge is we can't achieve this. Let's come up with something better that's cheaper. That's the challenge, and that's the fun, and that's what you're pushing against. But that, I think, is what results in a better movie. Awesome. Cool. 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 Well, thanks, Keith. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you, man. That was awesome. Yeah. Nice two-hour episode. We just went in. <laughs> <laughs> Two of the road to our episode. No, no. We could. We could. All right. Now, when we have a conversation, I like to just feel like, you know, we're just going in. You know, we just turned the freaking mics on. And we just started talking. Let's, so, yeah, I'm glad. This was fun. Thank you, guys. Yeah, That's man. Thank you. It was a lot, I have of, other a lot of game in there. The stuff we covered. We covered. Yeah. Okay. Just, Did we cover yeah. most of it? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask you one about this Avengers thing, but... It doesn't make sense to ask. It. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, it's, it's well, I'll bring it to you. I'll bring it to you this way. The Avengers, the, like, you know, like these Marvel movies have been these kind of like holes in the, yeah. like, in the release slate for people because, sure. like, you know, when it's, if it's coming out, you can't put a movie out three weeks before or three yeah. weeks well, you, after. You can't so, counter program against something everyone is going to go see. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But now those movies are done. I mean, essentially, they've, there's a, a there's a, Interesting risk now because they've nah they'll just keep going. <laughs> I mean, no, I believe I mean, it too. Yeah, yeah, I think they'll keep going, but yeah. I feel like that they've changed the dynamic in a sense that I just wonder, you know, like is there opportunities to counter program now that that you that you've lost the people? I don't. I don't think the opportunity comes until one of them fails. Mm. Right. Mm. This is the biggest movie in the world mm. in the history of the world right now. Mm-hmm. Maybe not adjusted for inflation, but based on where we are right. now. Right? Yeah, yeah. This has gone with so, the wind. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so you can't assume that the next one will just suddenly be nothing. Right. Oh, I'm not saying so, no, I'm not saying I'm just, yeah. yeah I'm just, I don't think the opportunity comes until they fumble. Mm. Really? Mm. Yeah. Um, and I don't mean fumble creatively because that's an argument we could right. have whether they have already or not, yeah. but more how it fumbles commercially. Yeah. Sure. 
Awesome. Where are you at on uh, uh, Twitter? I'm on Twitter at Keith Calder. That's it? That's my name. K-E-I-T-H-C-A-L-D-E-R. I deleted all my Facebook-related company accounts. Okay. So I'm not on Instagram or Facebook. All right. Where are you at, Chris? Unauthorized CBD on Twitter and Instagram. Cool. <clears throat> and I am your host, Hilliard Guest. You guys can find me on Twitter. I say Twitter like I'm cool. Um, <laughs> at Hilliard Guest, you guys can follow the show. Screenwriters are on Twitter. Any questions, screenwritersrentroom at gmail.com. Please go on iTunes. Give us a uh, five-star review. We need that for the metrics. Um, please go on our new what? Our Patreon page because of... Because donation is love, <laughs> and there'll be T-shirts. Uh, when did they come? This week? When? Um, <laughs> Why are you fucking around? So by the time this drops, <laughs> so, so by the time this drops, if you, if you go on the Patreon page, then there'll be T-shirts on there. <laughs> this will drop the following Monday. Probably. Yes. Okay. okay. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's what's up. Um, let me think. What else? So much shit going on. So much staffing shit going I on. I know, man. I, I can't. I can't. I, it's like, crazy. It's just, I know. We, we can do a whole nother thing. Anyway, um, follow us on Facebook, on the, on the page there. Shout out to Lisa. Um, shout out to Linnell. Just got staffed on Black Lightning. Black Lightning. That's really cool. Um, I'm bummed Lisa wasn't here, by the way. I know. Uh, I listened I to us like, episode. I was like, oh, I want to talk to her. Oh, she's awesome, us. dude. She's I awesome, know, dude. She's <laughs> she goes in. Um, huh. We have, have to figure out a way to bring you back. You know what? I'm thinking maybe we usually do like a horror thing for mm-hmm. um, Halloween. Halloween. Maybe we'll have you back around that time. If yeah, I'd love to come back. I've got horror experience. So, yeah. I mean, you've done a movie or two. <laughs> Where I wish the I remake know. of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we didn't even get nowhere into that. So we yeah. got plenty of room to talk to you. So for sure. Okay, awesome. Uh, so much shit going on. Um, yeah, there's like all kind of mixers going on right now with the Writers yeah. Guild and just like mixers here, mixers there. Anyway, uh, yeah. So thank you guys for listening. Everybody around the world listening to the show. We appreciate y'all motherfuckers. Um, should we say it like we're cool? <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate everybody listening and all that. Um, God, of stuff I want to say, but I don't want to say it on air. Don't say it on air. I'm not going to do it. Don't say it on air. I'm not going to hold myself yeah. back. I'm going to hold myself back. But um, next week, we try to get one in with hopefully Paul. Oh, will be he's back. In, hopefully he's in town. And Jeff, and we could do that one on health. That's yes, important for yes, sure. Okay, yes. cool. All right, y'all. Well, we love y'all. Peace and humptiness and all that. <laughs> and you know how we're doing in the rant room on the show. We keep it real. We keep it opinionated. We keep it what, Chris? 2019. 2019. Peace, y'all. Thanks again, man. I'ma say what I feel. And I promise to keep it real. Welcome to the Red Room. So you wanna be a rider? Well, you gotta be a rider till your fears are diminishing and doubts are behind ya. It's hard to grind in the business, got me stressed in the Red Room. We let that shit up off our chest. You know the street nerd has got no time for no kata. Sass in class, yes, that's Mr. Bolakaja. Never have to guess when you're listening to Hilliard. He gon' bring more game than a shark playing billiards. It's all about the crap of screenwriting. It's exciting when you turn an outline into something enlightening. Your pen and words are like bullets in a gun. Write what you feel, say what you want. Welcome to the Red Room. Red room, red room.